Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, January the 6th, 843 I always like to think of our listeners when I wake up in the morning because that's who we work for, right? That's who we serve. That's true. Bob Dylan said you got to serve somebody. We serve our listeners. So when I wrote Friday, January 6th, I thought of Williams. <laughs> I thought of Williams <laughs> first thing yeah. this morning because uh, today is the second anniversary of the um, the protest gone bad. <laughs> Uh, referred to by many liberals in the media as the insurrection, uh, the day America uh, stared its fate and future um, head on. Uh, I call it a a rambunctious bunch that got a little bit um, misguided in a um, in a, in a, I guess Rev the the holy cathedral of politics uh, around the world. Good morning, yeah. sir. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. I, I was thinking. I was thinking about the weather. Saw something yesterday, kind of interesting. Uh, we, we joke about South Carolina weather. You know, it's it's nearly zero yeah. with the wind blowing uh, one week, yeah. and then the next week it's seventy two or Don't three like or four. The weather. Just wait till this afternoon. There was a place in. Um, I'm trying to think. It might have been Kentucky. Uh, a little bit north. Of, it might have been Ohio. Your home state, Rev, mm-hmm. where someone was actually plowing snow out of their driveway and thunderstorms. I mean, they heard thunder in the background. I mean, they, right. they, they'd hadn't, uh, uh, they had a, a large amount of snow, a lot of cold weather. Snow didn't melt. Um, he's out in his yard trying to dispense of the ballots of the motion period. I'm sorry, ballots of the snow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> flashback. Well, yeah, we'll get to that in just a second. <laughs> so he was there to dispense of the ballots of the snow and heard thunder in the background. And I started thinking about, you know, th- these environmental alarmists and their, their insinuations that um, any weather event on the planet today is a result of what? Man-made climate change. Right. I mean, it's something that we've done. It's not cyclical. It's not natural. It's not God-ordained, but rather something that we've done, uh, burning those you know fossil fuels and you know whatever it is. I mean, it, it spray can. Remember the ozone air and oh, yeah. uh, aerosol cans and all ozone layer and aerosol cans. And all that. I went back and read yesterday something very interesting um, in a website that I frequent because I host a moderately conservative uh, radio show. But um, but when I when I saw the guy plowing the snow and I heard the thunder, or he says he heard thunder in the background. Weather's crazy, but weather's always been crazy. This is some newfound phenomenon. I mean, there's a way to monetize it now. Al Gore and John Kerry have figured out a way to get wealthy. And a sector of the economy figured out where to get tax incentives and and a lot of um uh, a lot of persuading by government to make us go down one road or another. But per and, and I guess I trust this report because there's a lot of got a lot of big words. You ready, Rip? <laughs> okay, um, let's hear. The um the data for all year 2022. We're, we're obviously concluded 22. We're just uh, first week of January. Um, and they did this global wide. Storms were at their lowest strength level in the last 42 years, as shown by, you ready? The accumulated cyclone energy. That, that is one of the um, distinct measurements of climate change. Let me say that again. You ready? The accumulated cyclone energy. Now, now that reflects the combined frequency, intensity, and duration of all storms on the planet that have been recorded. So, uh, Colorado University's Department of here we go. No, the riff. This has got to be legitimate. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> I mean, you've already heard me say accumulated cyclone energy. I mean, I know it's early, but stick with me. Okay. Um, the Atmospheric Science Department at Colorado State University tracked all of the national 
um, Oce- Oceanic. What am I trying to say? Oceanic um, Administration Agency, NOAA. NOAA. Yeah, that's who monitors and tracks all the hurricane. I mean, they run the National Hurricane Center. I mean, that's the way you and I would be familiar mm-hmm. with most of what they do. But they've actually got a chart here, graph. They've got two, three, four graphs. And I went back and read. <laughs> I don't know what I'm reading, but I read it anyway. Um, and, and when you go through the, um, you ready, Rev? You ready? Mm-hmm. Hydrological, Ooh. climatological, meteorological, there you go. Um, of all the disasters in 2022, global, not just in America, um, we had a pretty lame year. I mean, I guess the focus will now be on wildfires and, you know, um, rivers and droughts and whatnot because we've we've underperformed when it comes to um, accumulated cyclone energy mm-hmm. and some of these measurements. It's bogus, guys. It's it's nonsense. And how many Americans are beginning to believe in this is concerning and alarming to me. I mean, I, I've talked to reasonable people recently about their, um, you know, maybe I need to do my part in buying electrical, car, you know, electric car. Maybe I need to, you know, I don't want to be a bad dude, man. And, and, you know, maybe I'm being somewhat convinced that um, all this burning of fossil fuels has led to uh, an increase of intensity. It has not. But it's simple. It has not. John Kerry's allowed to fly around the world on a private plane and lie to people. Al Gore has been lying to people for a long time. The majority of Americans believe that we're fairly gullible and we'll we'll buy into the lie. Um, At the same time that the, ready? The accumulated cyclone energy <laughs> has proven to be um, even less intense this year than in previous years. And you see the graph here. Over the couple of years, it goes up and down, yeah. up and down, up and down. And this is since 1980, 42 um, years of uh, record keeping, so to speak, which is a um, – I mean, they're, they're telling us they know what the temperature of the planet Earth will be 100 years from now based on 50 years of analysis or 100 years of analysis. Um, carbon dating says the planet somewhere – I mean, I know we got new Earth theory and old Earth theory – somewhere between uh you know a billion and four and a half billion years old i mean i know some of the real new earthers and, and you know some with a more um rigid biblical worldview that, than i hold i don't think the that um the bible uh, rules out the earth being 4.5 billion years old you know a, a, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day what does that mean you tell me i mean i wasn't there when they wrote it um that's left to interpretation and uh, and some by studying and understanding, but um, but at the same time, the automated uh, accumulated cyclone energy says we're doing about what we always do when it comes to weather. It's cyclical. Um, the majority of people are beginning to believe that they need to contribute to saving the planet. You know, I needed to be a good person, good steward of God's resource. Of course, you do. We all do. But then I went back and looked uh, at the increase in electric vehicles. You know, the increase of sales in electric vehicles talked to a banker yesterday uh, about electric cars and i said if you finance many electric cars no why they cost too much i mean they're just simply too expensive got a couple of wealthy clients that uh, you know i don't know what motivates them they just may be intrigued by the electric vehicle but they bought some of these high-end teslas and he said every every electric car i financed has been over a hundred thousand dollars now these people have money but it doesn't matter to them everything's relative right so i went back and looked um last year in January of 2022, there were only 10.5% of all car loans over $1,000 a month. This January, 16% of all car loans 
made in America today are over one thousand dollars. So we've gone up five and a half percent from ten and a half percent. Now, now once again, guys, this is the business mind. I mean, this is the way business people think. Um, the weather's doing one thing. We're, we're told the weather's doing one thing that it's really not. How many of you are gullible out there? Well, most of us, to some degree. I mean, I think Carolina's got a chance to win a national championship. Not in women's basketball, but in football. That's how gullible I am. Um, but but we believe in things. And, and, and the media does a great job in kind of twisting and turning and poking and prodding and, and convincing um, all of us that, that, that something is true that is not. And so, so when, when I read that the, um, the accumulated cyclone energy is about what it always has been, and once again, guys, that is a pretty accurate reading. When you talk to people, not Al Gore and John Kerry, forget them for a second. When you talk to people who really and truly have been educated and, and, and learned on, on what these really mean, and I'm talking about um, the combined frequency, intensity, duration of all storms, these people know how to read the data. They've been trained. They have a, a genuine interest in doing this for a living. They're experts. And the experts have never said that there's not a single government non-funded expert. I mean, all the government-funded experts say, you know, the, the, the science is settled because they get paid to say the science is settled. But, but for those out there independently operating, trying to understand the weather, not on behalf of Al Gore, not on behalf of um, some green energy company, not on behalf of the Biden administration, they're basically saying nothing to see here. I mean, in 42 years, we've had a few years with higher than average uh, frequency, intensity, and duration of storms. We've had several years of lower than average. 2020, 2022 happened to be one of those lower than average um, years on it as it relates to storm. But, but the American people are beginning to be driven, no pun intended, toward the electric car. And I wonder how much of that is because you're intrigued by it, you find it to be a better experience, or you genuinely believe that you're being somewhat uh, altruistic in helping make the world, uh, our country, a better place. You, you know, I don't, I don't really buy into the global cl- climate change and man-made stuff. I mean, we don't know. That's that's how, that's our official stance. But I think electric cars are cool. I think they look cool in general. I think the technology behind them is cool. Now, at some point, the market will probably you know work it out so they're affordable and in line with, with non-electric cars, and I would be interested in one at that point. Will it? Well, I would think so. Well, what makes it, you? It, I'm, it, I'm, 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 I'm gonna be devil, devil's advocate it. for a second. What makes you believe that? You're a smart guy. What may? What information out there leads you to believe that the electric car will one day be competitive with the, the you know, the internal combustion engine? Well, technology has gotten to where it's gotten. Okay. Where, I mean, where's the, it gotten? The, the, well, the the possibility that you can charge a battery, okay. and the battery can run a vehicle reliably, highway speeds, and mm-hmm. get you from point A to point B. For how long? Well, then that's the thing. It, it, I guess uh, you, you go back how many years, and it was a mile or 10 feet. No, I'm talking about how long will the battery charge and recharge? How long will it hold a charge? Re- remember when well, vinyl siding took the, took, the place, took the place of painted siding? Remember people went crazy, vinyl siding. We're not painting homes anymore. We're, we're putting vinyl siding up. Why are you putting vinyl siding up? Because I don't want to paint my house every five years. Um, and I remember reading something. Vinyl siding had been out about five or six or seven years. And my father told me, son, I'm putting vinyl siding up. It's got a lifetime guarantee. Uh, you know, it's only been around five years. Right. I, mean, I, understand, right. You, right. I mean, I understand the marketing <laughs> but, component. But, but but I think that it is, it is all moved. Hold on. Okay. 
Hold on, my computer's well, making noise you, here. You, Apologize. See, it's because you're playing. Not because you're not working. First thing this <laughs> morning, as diligently as uh, as you should. But you know, technology. It started somewhere. It started with you know a battery that probably couldn't move a car. Okay. And now we've gotten to the point where a battery can hold enough charge so, to move a car uh, quite a distance. So you it's think, improved. You think we're getting closer to the electric vehicle being a reasonable alternative to the internal combustion engine. I think they're, it's getting closer. Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, how much closer? Well, it's, it's a lot closer than it was okay, but, but 10 you years ago. Headed. Right, right. I mean, it, w- will, will, it, will it equal the efficiency, we'll say, of internal combustion engine? Will, will there be a day when the, when the Tesla is a reasonable alternative to the, you know, the, um, the pickup I'm driving, the, the, the vehicle you drive or freeholder? I don't know the answer to that, but we're being told we're close. I mean, we're almost there. Are we? I don't have any idea. How long have these sorts of batteries been around? And I'm talking about in I'm not talking about in, in specialty uses. I'm not talking about NASA and, and some government program. I'm talking about mainstream Americans. How many how many how long have mainstream Americans depended on getting in a car with an electric battery at its as its power source, turning the key, putting it in drive, and going to work? I mean, you're, you're saying we're close, and I'm, I'm not. I'm not arguing with you because because I hear that every day. You know, we're close. We're close. The technology is almost there. I mean, we're not. Okay, there. we're closer, but but how close are we? Well, I don't know. Now, I don't and think what, anybody and what does. I don't like is the government forcing you know whatever they're doing. But but, but you accept they are, of course. Well, I mean, well with incentives yeah, and tax they're, credits, they're hostile saying, to fossil fuels. Sure, sure they are. And and I just, I mean, it goes back to my point that that I've made redundantly throughout the last year and we'll talk about debt in a second because i think we've made some progress in our speakers race okay i got a source that i talked to late last actually i I talked text him last night he responded to me um this morning i've heard but but, but when, when i see that you know the the climate of the planet is basically unchanged I mean, there, there are ebbs and flows. That there are periods of warming, periods of cooling, periods of a lot of rain, periods of not so much rain, uh, periods of um, high intensity hurricanes, periods of not so high intensity hurricanes. But when you look at the accumulated cyclone energy, which is probably the best way to measure storm activity all over the world, it's about like it always is. In fact, it was a little below average this past year. And I just wonder how many people, how many good, goodwilled decent and honorable men and women are decided to go buy that electric vehicle because they believe it's time for them to do their part. That's the point I'm trying to make. We're told, did you know in the omnibus bill, there's funding to build 50,000, might be 5,000 charging stations around the country. I mean, we're not going to let the private sector do that. Right. We're, the government See, is going that's, to, that's what I don't like. Well, I mean, but, but if, if we're going to buy electric cars, I mean, somebody's got to charge them somewhere. Right. Now, now, the electric grid, we know, doesn't provide enough energy to charge these cars. Remember, we had rolling blackouts during the um, the real cold spell we had, Duke yeah. Energy, actually sending that notice saying, you know, we're in a bind. We can't produce enough energy for everybody to run their heat as long as they're trying to run it today. So we're going to basically turn people's lights off for 45 minutes and then turn it back on and go over here and turn them off for 45 minutes. What if everybody were trying to charge their electric car that day? Would have probably gone a day or two or three without energy. It's just an insane idea. And when I see the cost of a car loan, and I hear my banker saying every electric vehicle I finance is over $100,000, I, I, I just think people are getting twisted and turned in, in a way that is unnecessary. And I just hope we use our noggin as something other than something to put a hat on. Let's go to the phone. Here's Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale. Hey, guys. Well, 
I do believe that the price will eventually get to where it's a little more reasonable, just like the flat screen TVs did. I bought one when the first year they came out, when they were still LCDs. And uh, I think I paid like fourteen or $1,500 for a 47-inch TV, and now they're down to about $250. Um, here's, here's, here's my dilemma. I also have a hard time with man-made climate change, but we definitely have something going on. You look at the, uh, at the droughts out west, and I know that they uh, figured out all those water rights and everything when the cycle was at the high end and so forth, but the fact of the matter is we do have a lot of people that, that are being affected by all this. And, and, and is there anything we can do about it? I think that's pretty arrogant to believe that we can do something about it at this stage with our technology and so forth. But you stop and you think, even if they do get the price somewhere fairly reasonable, you're talking about 350, 400 million cars in this country, not talking about the rest of the world, in this country. I don't see that happening ever, that they have enough materials to make 400 million car batteries. And oh, by the way, in five years, all 400 million need a new car battery. Um, I just don't see any of that happening. I certainly don't know what the answers are. At one time, they were talking about hydrogen fuel cells and different things like they use on the uh, uh, rocket ships, NASA does. But uh, I think there is definitely something to the climate change thing. I mean, we can see it. It's not necessarily just storms, temperatures and droughts and all those things. But I, I certainly don't know what the answer is, and I don't think anybody else does. You guys have a good weekend. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. Okay, let's say the technology of electric vehicles is is allowing it to be more competitive with the internal combustion engine. Is the internal combustion engine not improving? Right, of course it is. I mean, I've always believed that if left to their own, I mean, in other words, if the government didn't meddle in their business, if oil companies didn't have an interest in how much, I mean, I think I think there are people out there plenty smart to design and build an internal combustion engine gets gets 100 miles a gallon. I mean, I believe that yeah. with all of my heart, uh, you know, but but the government has not stressed that. Remember, we had um, uh, MPG mileage standards and all these other sorts of things, mm-hmm. cafe standards, you know, emission standards. I mean, do you not believe that if we motivated our really bright engineers in America, they couldn't design an internal combustion engine that got 200 miles a gallon? Of course they could. Absolutely yeah, they could. Good point. But but once again, that there's a green energy out here that, that is not inclusive of fossil fuels, so all the technological advances and engineering marvels that have happened in that sector, um, and I'm not talking about runt with a toothpick in his mouth at the NASCAR garage. I'm talking about highly skilled, highly trained, highly educated engineers that look at an internal combustion engine today a lot differently than we did, but that doesn't count. That that's that's fossil fuel. Doesn't matter how efficient we make fossil fuel. That doesn't. Remember, we talked about coal plants, coal generating uh, plants. Um, it doesn't matter how many scrubbers. Doesn't matter how many filters. Doesn't matter how clean we. It's still fossil fuel. And there's there there's an animus in America today toward fossil fuel. And when Rev says, "Well, the technology's gotten much better at, at electric vehicles," do you not believe the technology could have gotten that much better in internal combustion engines? I mean, the, the, the car that gets 40 miles a gallon or 30 miles a gallon, you don't believe there's an engineer out there anywhere that could design an internal combustion engine 
that could get 100 miles a gallon? Of course there is. But the government decided to basically, um, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to internal combustion engines and put all of its eggs in the electric vehicle basket. And if you listen to the CEO of Toyota, and his name is Toyota, Toyota. but not a T, but rather a D, um, D-A, again, T-O-Y-O-D-A, he says that he thinks we're making a grave error. First, big auto CEO to say, um, I'm deeply concerned about how many um, how much investments auto industries have been forced to make in green energy. And we may rethink our strategy here at probably the elite auto manufacturer in all of the world. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. You know, I, I do agree with you on this point. It was obviously... You the, hate it, but you do. <laughs> no, okay. but, but I mean, the government chose you know, to, to force the electric vehicle path as opposed to really putting government resources behind increasing efficiency of internal combustion engines, efficiencies of, you know, gaining fossil fuels from the earth sources and such. So they made that choice, and that's what I really disagree with. But there's no doubt about it that I think that if the, the government resources were put behind uh, the internal combustion engine and the efficiencies there, that, that we could have gotten to the point where we're driving 100-mile-per-gallon cars or more. We, we marvel at the idea of a car being you know, powered by, by batteries. I mean, we marvel, and we should, but that, that's great technological advancement. The point I'm trying to make is we're going to throw out one of the great inventions of the history of mankind. I mean, really, I right. mean, the, the beginning of the electric automobile or the electric personal transportation, I mean, is that the end of the internal combustion engine? Really? I mean, one of, one of the greatest inventions in the history of mankind. I mean, if, if, you, if you said, okay, what, what 10 inventions have changed the plot of humanity more than any? The internal combustion engine would have to be in that. I mean, the, the, to, to believe that somebody came up with the idea that I can take a spark plug, and, and a cylinder wall and a piston, and I can um, create an explosion in that cylinder wall that, that makes that piston go up and down, turns that crankshaft, turns that drive shaft, turns that axle, drives it, turns the wheels, drives a car, powers a vehicle down the road, um, turns a prop around, powers a yacht, a, a ship, a container ship. Um, I mean, imagine the, the contribution to commerce. Humanity in general that the internal combustion engine has contributed. And all of a sudden, the government decides... Uh, well, that's too old and outdated. Here's a better way to do it. I think we should explore every technological advantage we can we can have, and I think electric should be a part of that. But there were a lot of innovative and modernization to the internal combustion engine that I, I mean, it's almost like, hey, thank you for what you've done. We'll see you later. <laughs> and if we do that to one of the greatest inventions in the history of mankind, we'll get exactly what we deserve. And the guy Toyota, the CEO of Toyota says, not so fast. We, we're going to try and innovate in electric vehicles. We accept that there is some technology here that will absolutely, absolutely contribute to our business model, but we're not giving up on the internal combustion engine. And you said during the break, you've always read that there are, there are research projects or R&D out there that show people can build an internal combustion engine gets it gets 100 miles a gallon mm -hmm. 150 miles a gallon a long time ago. but exxon doesn't want that shell doesn't want that you know bp doesn't want that um and i, I just think it's, it's odd that all of a sudden we decide this is a better way so let's forget the other the other way let's go to the phone here's charles and lamar good morning charles hey good morning um you know if you put the government 
in charge of the Sahara Desert. In 10 years, there'd be a shortage of sand. So that's just one thing you have to remember regarding these engines. Electric vehicles as a real thing are generations away. Now, I got a friend, lives in Chapin, works in Florence. She bought a Tesla. She installed a charging station at her home and at her office. <clears throat> she drives back and forth every day, and it's a very efficient way for her to make that drive from Chapin to Florence and back five days a week. But they have another vehicle that they use for everything else, to go to Clemson to football games, to do these, these other things. Electric vehicles now, with rare exception, like this particular individual I'm speaking of, are just like masks. They're a political statement only. And people are driving them to try to prove to their friends, hey, I'm concerned about uh, climate change. Uh, there's no legitimate reason for anybody, except with rare exception, to drive something like that. Now, I got one thing I'm going to say about the speaker. I made this comment. I made a comment about it yesterday. But I'm going to say something else. The people in the GOP establishment, um, especially the leadership in the House and Senate, have absolutely no idea the amount of disdain that their base have for them right now. No idea. And I, I, I like what I see up there. They've had 11 votes. They can have 11 more as far as I'm concerned. Hope y'all have a great day and enjoy your uh, unarmed insurrection day. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. And I know Charles was in the car business for a long time, probably more studied than most are uh, in that field. Uh, yeah, unarmed uh, insurrection. Uh, be a first. Mm -hmm. Be the first time I've ever heard of an unarmed uh, insurrection. It was, a, it was a, a rambunctious crowd where a few got totally out of control and some terrible things happened wish it had not had happened but i refuse to allow the media and the left in america to declare it an insurrection it simply was not that bunch that did it if they were motivated to um insurrect rest assured they could have let's go to the phone boudreaux in orangeburg listening to wtqs hello boudreaux Good morning. Your last caller stole a little bit of my thunder. I was going to say an uh, electric car is just a $100,000 COVID mask for uh, virtue signaling. Um, I'm convinced of that now. But I, I do want to play, I guess, I don't know if I'm being devil's advocate or angel's advocate. I don't know. But uh, I know that uh, I'm sure back at the turn of the century, not this last one, but the other one, you know, uh, there was people that said, I ain't selling my horse. Uh because they ain't going to be able to pump enough oil out the ground to make enough gas for everybody to have one of them uh, horseless buggies that that Ford man made. And, um, but yet we did. <laughs> and uh, I believe the electric car, there's potential. And, and the reason I believe it, and I'm not going to buy one. <laughs> I know. Uh, I don't eat almond milk or coconut milk because coconuts and almonds don't have nipples. And I don't want to drive something that don't run on gas. All right. Um, milk comes from nipples, period. That's it. Not nuts anyway um but look at your phone now you guys and i am too old enough to remember rotary phones we we made phone calls on a rotary phone and when you start naming off the things your phone that you have in your hand can do the things it's replaced it's your flashlight now it's your map 
you know, it's your camera, it's your video recorder, it's, it's everything. So to suggest that they're not going to be able to uh, make automobiles efficient enough for everybody to have one, it's, I think it is possible. I think it's well within the realm of possibility. It's like the your last caller said, it's generations away. Um, but you look at the first guy that went wiggy, 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 wiggy on a Model T, long time before we got what we got today, okay? So, yeah, it, it's possible. I don't know if we'll see it. But, um, but right now, I agree with your caller, it's a $100,000 COVID mask for virtue signaling. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate that. And the point, I'm not opposed to electric vehicles. I'm, I'm on the record. I mean, I encourage innovation. I encourage technological breakthroughs. I encourage a better way to get us from point A to point B. I encourage competition. So let's do this. Let's stop incentivizing the electric car and let us compete with the innovation within the internal combustion engine. Uh, or either let's incentivize the, the folks who, you know, design and build and, and innovate in an internal combustion engine. I mean, let's give them as much incentive as the government has given those in, in Tesla and some of the EV sector. And let's see where we end up. I mean, do we not believe? And the point I'm trying to make, guys, is you're, you're, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that at some point in time, the electric vehicle replaces the internal combustion engine. I, I just don't buy that. Now, now, Boudreaux's talking about, you know, out with the old end with the new, the horse and buggy. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the day Henry Ford, you know, basically revolutionized the auto industry, and he didn't invent the auto. He kind of revolutionized the industry. The day Henry Ford did that was a bad day for the blacksmith. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. There's always been disruption in economies, a big disruption. I mean, the day the, the first email was sent, that's a bad day for the post office. I mean, the day the first website was created, that's a bad day for print media. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they're winners and losers, and disruption comes in a lot of different facets and phases. The point I'm trying to make is the government has basically declared war on the internal combustion engine in support of the electric vehicle. And despite having done that, I'm predicting that the electric vehicle will not overtake the internal combustion engine. I'm going to imagine if, in the, if the internal combustion engine was getting as much government support as the electric vehicles are, what sort of um, internal combustion engine-powered cars would we be driving 5, 10, 15 years from now? Um, I'm not saying all the great inventions have been invented, but the internal combustion engine was a great, great invention that has been improved upon. It's been made better. I mean, we, we get better gas mileage. The cars don't break down. I mean, when I was a kid, it was it was very common to have car trouble. I mean, you're nodding your head. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean something's wrong with the carburetor. Yeah. Something's wrong with the you know with, with the and cylinder the head. It. Something's wrong with the with the spark plug wires. Or you know, I mean, it, cars now run for a long, long, long time. And 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 I just think once again, take the internal combustion engine and the electric vehicle. Take government incentives and government, you know, programs out of the equation. It will take more than a generation or two for the electric vehicle to be a peer competitor to um, the electric. Excuse me, the internal combustion engine. And I think it's entirely possible that that, that we humans come up with another energy source that may skip over well, batteries. I mean, Toyota's investing in hydrogen today, right? Hydrogen. I mean, t- Toyota's already investing. Flux capacitor. Yeah. I mean, from Back to the Future, yeah. right? And, and, dump and, trash in and, and what the CEO of Toyota basically says is the government is is almost insisting we put all of our eggs in the EV basket. I'm too good a businessman to do that. Not me personally, but the guy from Toyota. I mean, he says, I'm too good a business guy to, to, to for the government to force me to, to basically book my future on one 
um, mode of transportation that they believe is the answer to, you know, man-made climate. Well, really, all go, it goes all the way back to, um, to whether or not man's changing the climate as much as some people believe uh, that it is. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few. Is that Baker Street? Are we playing that for a, a, a reason? Friola, are you brown-nosing? Yeah. Sure. Okay. I did that on purpose. Okay. <laughs> I figured you did. I mean, I figured you did. I can't, and I don't blame I can't imagine you that's for doing one of Freehold's favorite songs, it'll, though. It'll ding you for a raise here in about two hours, Rev, two and a half hours. <laughs> that is a good tune. Yeah, let's go to the phone. Here's Clint in Santee. Good morning, Clint. Hey, good morning, fellas. You know, I'm probably going to upset a lot of people this morning, but I have, I've been listening, and I've been listening, and I keep thinking. Now, I'm old enough to remember back before we were talking about, everybody was talking about the ozone layer. I don't think I've heard anybody talk about the ozone layer in, I don't know, five, six, seven, maybe a decade. Because why? Because we've, we've signed all of these treaties and we've done all these things with carbon emissions to reduce, to help regain the ozone layer. So then I remember back when they were talking about it was, it was uh, global warming, and then there was talk about a uh, second ice age, and now it's just climate change. Now, back in a year's Years past, I worked for Peterbilt Motors in Nashville, Tennessee. We built trucks. And I was there when, when the law that went into effect, which caused everybody that built it, they used a diesel engine vehicle to have to put differential in it. And I know from, for, from, uh, for a fact that when that law went into effect, or just prior to it, the manufacturers of these engines, Detroit Diesel, Cummins, Caterpillar, they did not even have the technology to make the engines do what the government had mandated. Bill Clinton signed the law, and I think it went into effect in, uh, right around, uh, I want to say, 2008, the final phase of it, because it was phased in over a period of years. <clears throat> Before that law went into effect, these engine manufacturers were scrambling to get these, mo these engines to do what the government had mandated that they needed to do, which was to have zero carbon emissions coming out of the exhaust on these diesel motors now they did it but you know what the funny thing is is when it finally did when they finally got it right and it took a number of years before they finally got it to where it halfway worked decent it created it made the cost of the engine almost double and guess what happened miraculously it was it was like magic at the same time gasoline was always more expensive than diesel y'all remember that well, miraculously, diesel fuel was now twice as much as the price of gasoline. Now, I might sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I'm telling you, and I believe this in my heart of hearts, that if the government gets involved in something, somebody's making money. And if for them to force this EV motor on everybody, I think that there's somebody out there in the government, or, or the, either that or it's a, man, it's a way of controlling the uh the voting populace you know i anyway that's my two well that's a lot more than two cents thank you for the call and having been in the trucking business for as long as my family has been my brother's still in it my father's passed away but i lived every second of that transitioning from one sort of diesel engine to a zero emitting z uh, diesel engine and i can remember some of the truck dealers worried and concerned about the price escalation um the reason i'll tie this into the speaker's debate because i'm going to cover that in the next hour the reason I'm so believing in what these 18, 20 holdouts are doing is because when you budget and the Congress has made a deal with the lobbyist, at least we know about it. 
when we're not budgeting and we don't have control of the rules committee and deals are done in the dark and night, backroom 4,000-page uh, bill delivered the day before you know the vote, you don't know what deals are in there. And this rules committee, which is really the first time I'm hearing a lot about a rules committee and what they do and how critical they are. It, it's, it's unbelievably critical. They're the traffic cop of the House. A bill does not go from the subcommittee to the floor of the House without first going to the rules committee. And Nancy Pelosi would tell you, I'm the rules committee. John Boehner would say, I'm the rules committee. And what these um, these House members want is a reestablishing of the budgeting process and some control over the rules committee. And, and I'll go back to, um, if diesel costs more money, somebody's making money. And he's exactly right. And the reason I want to see this done, and I'll kind of uh, elaborate on this in the next hour, the reason I'm supportive of the 18 is I believe that the concessions they're asking for, once again, I said yesterday, I'll stand by the comment. Some are publicity hounds. Some are looking for attention. Some want to be the face of Fox News or have their own radio show. But Chip Roy, um, Scott Perry, I think's his name, and and Ralph Norman are not publicity hounds. I mean, they're trying to reestablish the budgeting process in the House. Why does that play into the... Um, to the to the electric if we're going if the government makes a deal if your government makes a deal with a special interest you deserve to know about it the government has made a deal in your name with the electric vehicle industry they're subsidizing they're incentivizing at least you should know what details are in that deal and if we're doing omnibus and continuing resolutions and, and, and a billion goes here and 50 billion go there and 100 billion go over here, you don't have any idea what the deals are. But make the members of Congress stand up and say, here's the deal we made with your money, or we don't have enough money to give everybody everything. They're not being made to do that now. That's a hell of a concession. And to me, it's worth however many rounds it takes. Back in a minute. I'm holding this story. I hadn't forgotten anything, but I'm holding this story about the South Carolina Supreme Court striking down the state's six-week abortion uh, ban. I'm holding that story until the delegation gets here. I actually texted with him yesterday, and we'll discuss. Um, I mean, my tweet yesterday, why does South Carolina not have a conservative Supreme Court? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, if any state in America should uphold you know, that ban, it would have been South Carolina, but they did not in a 3-2 vote. Anyway, I'll hold that until the uh, the delegation gets here. I'm going to get back to something I said, then we'll get to the call. Um, the EV industry is 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 trying to get government. Now, now Biden and the Democrats are on board very much so, but they made a deal with the government, and it's your money. I mean, the government doesn't have any money. It's all your taxpayer dollars. So if the rules committee's inactive, if they're not budgeting, if the government is funded on 4.5 CRs per year and, and an omnibus bill of $1.7 trillion that has about uh, about half of it, nah, half of it is defense spending. The other half would be discretionary spending includes aid to Ukraine and I mean, there's some EV charging stations in here. The point I'm trying to make, guys, the reason that I think the, um, the holdouts are doing the right thing, if they get these concessions, now, now, now I'll say it, I said it earlier, I'll say it again, it's worthy of repeating. Some of these folks are attention seekers. Some are trying to make a name, quote-unquote, for themselves. But but Scott Perry, Chip Roy, Ralph Norman are, are very serious individuals who believe we've got to reestablish um, the 12 appropriating subcommittees and, and have some influence on the Rules Committee, or they're not going along. 
And it's, and it's troubling me to believe that McCarthy won't give in to that. I mean, that, those are reasonable concessions to, to believe. I mean, if you're for limited government fiscal restraint, you've got to be for the budgeting process. And the reason is, Reverend, the EV industry is a good industry. If the government makes a deal with the EV sector on your behalf and can bear it in an omnibus bill, you never know about it. If the government's going to give $45 billion to Ukraine, but they do it in an omnibus bill, you, you have no clue who's held accountable for that money. So, so what these 18 are doing, and what I'm gathering, and I texted last night with someone very much in the know, they led me to believe that Chip Roy can bring about 12 members with him if McCarthy makes that concession. Now, if McCarthy makes that concession and becomes speaker, I'm cool with it. Because I think that concession is worthy of having whomever agrees to that as the speaker. So, so the concessions are, in regards to the Rules Committee, to have a um, kind of a conservative influence and reestablishing the way Congress is required to budget via the Constitution. They're in violation, but it's Congress. Who cares? I mean, we, you know, we do what we want to do up here. They make um, the rules. Sure, they make the rules. There's the Rules Committee. Exactly. Um, so, so once again... I don't care if it takes 100 rounds. If they can convince McCarthy to make those concessions and Chip Roy brings 12 along with him, I'm fine with that. I think it's going to happen today. I think McCarthy wants to be speaker so bad, and I think he's put so much energy behind trying to become speaker that he's willing to make that concession. And, folks, as much as you like McCarthy or not, if McCarthy makes that concession and they make a deal, and it's a binding deal, we're in a much better place. Congress will serve the American people, in a, and, the, and the 18 holdouts are to be commended. Not everyone, but, but the 12 that I think Chip Roy can carry with him if McCar McCarthy makes those concessions. And I'll go on the record. I think he makes the concessions. And I think they make a deal at some point in time in the next couple of days, and, and those concessions are made. And once again, if we spent, if we send forty five billion to Ukraine, let's get on the floor of the House and debate it. If you're going to spend taxpayer dollars, the American taxpayer deserves to know who decided to spend what, where, when, and how. Let's go to the phone, Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Like you said, most of these guys are doing it for the right reason. You got one or two brand new, hadn't served, that won't seat on certain committee assignments, and that's garbage. But I, I think uh, McCarthy's going through a big learning period. Remember, Boehner didn't want to fight this. He always complained that he just worked as a Democrat. McConnell doesn't want to fight this. McCarthy wants to fight it. He, he He's learning, and, and they all know we're at a turning point in this country. People don't realize it. You know, there's almost two and a half trillion dollars just floating around in the government right now from all these bills. And and they're starting to see the effect of it. Why? The Republicans got five million more votes. But yet in strategic places, the Democrats got more votes. Because Biden wrote that executive order a week after he took office instructing all the government agencies. Remember I talked to you this earlier about two months before the election, to get all the government agencies involved in registering and getting people out to vote, and that is totally illegal. And the Biden administration will not 
give up the the paperwork that they're they're doing, showing what they did. So now they're going to court, and I'm, I imagine it's going to go to the Supreme Court, and it's going to make them do it. But we're in a turning point. But if you were talking about the death fluid on the trucks, it's so funny. It's, well, we talked about the unleaded gas before, remember, with the catalytic converters. They did away with the lead, which made the gas burn 100%. And then they had to have a catalytic converter to burn the unburnt gas that comes out in tailpipe. Well, the death fluid, that's horse pee and water. 66% water, 34% horse cow pee. And they're selling it for $20 for two gallons. And all that does is, is spray the, the smoke in that death collector so it doesn't go out the, the, the smoke stack. So it's, we got to get a handle on this or this country's done. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. I don't believe that the concessions drained the swamp. But I do believe, now, now Joe's right. Boehner didn't want any part of this. Remember, he quit. And then Paul Ryan becomes speaker. Um, I don't know that McCarthy wanted any part of this. Guys, I, I've said multiple times, to, to lump McCarthy in with McConnell is unfair. McConnell is a failed leader for conservative America, period. I mean, it's as simple as that. There's no other way to dress it up. We could argue for a day, a year, a month, whatever. McConnell, Mitch McConnell, has been an abject failure on behalf of conservative America. 90% of the base are conservative. 10% of the representation is conservative. McConnell ain't one of them. Now, now I think there's more than one in two, one or two in this house in this last, you know, speaker's escapade. I think there are more than one or two seeking attention. But I think of the 20, there are about 12 or 13 that genuinely want to begin making government better. I mean, to me, that means make, making government more conservative, making it more responsible, advocating on behalf of fiscal restraint. And, and, a, and a great first step would be if Chip Roy is able to make a deal, because hear, I'm hearing that he's the lead negotiator with McCarthy and his, um, and his believers. You know, McCarthy's got about five or six, you know, advocates on his team. And I think when they sit down, it's Scott Perry and, and uh, Chip Roy, and they're the ones doing most of the negotiation. And from what I've gathered, Roy has been adamant about wanting more influence on the Rules Committee and reestablishing the way we we budget, being being able to amend bills on the floor of the House. Pelosi made that illegal. I mean, you you know, and, and I, a little bit like the Pelosi rules. You know, I'm the boss. I'm the traffic cop. You do what I say, do. Guys, we hadn't budgeted in 25 years. If government makes a deal with with a military defense contractor or the EV sector or big pharma or the insurance companies, and, and, and peop, the lobbyists are not there in the name of patriotism. The lobbyists that litter the halls of Congress are not there working for we the people. They're working for who they're getting paid by. And they're not getting paid by Main Street USA. They're getting paid to do a job. What is the job? To fleece government for everything they can. Pfizer didn't go up. Pfizer didn't spend a million dollars a month lobbying government so they can make sure everybody was safe. They're in it for the money. They're for-profit company. They are big pharma. They're the embodiment of big pharma. I didn't say everything about Pfizer is bad. That would be absurd to suggest. Pfizer's done a lot of good work. But when Pfizer saw an opportunity to fast-track a vaccine, they, 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 it was all hands on deck. 
and they made a deal with the government. If they make that deal with the government, at least we should know about it and, and, and try to understand it. Now, now, you can say, well, 75% of America doesn't care anyway. Maybe they don't, but 25% do. And we're all entitled to know. And the budgeting process forces you to reveal what sort of deals you made. The CR and omnibus process allow you to do it middle of the night. Once again, 4,100 some odd pages of legislation gets delivered to your office. And the next day you're expected to vote on it. You know why you're expected to vote on it? Because Big Pharma raised money for you. And the insurance companies made contributions to you. And the electric vehicle industry supported you. And, and they're not looking out for America. And that's what Chip Roy has consistently said. I want to see budgeting that allows the American public to look if they choose to and understand where their money's going. That's not a draining of the swamp, but it's a good first step. And I applaud the ones that have dug in and may get an eventual concession from a guy who has political ambitions and wants to be speaker. And I don't have a problem with McCarthy as speaker if he makes these concessions. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Hey, kid, what does it say about the Republicans at the House with only 10 of them worth of them? You know what I'm saying? Only 10 of them really give a crap about us. The rest of them want to do everything without our knowledge under the cover of night and do it that that put America last every time. Put the sales first and America last. Every one of these guys makes me sick. And you can't carry on a serious, there's no way to have a serious conversation about electric vehicles if you aren't talking about nuclear power, if you don't talk about the fact that if you're going to have a coal mine, that's bad. But if you have a lithium, cobalt, nickel mine, zinc mine, that's good, run by slave labor and diesel-powered machines. I mean, it's ridiculous. But they're going to have that. that so you just look at who's for electric vehicles, and that's all you got to know to know that this, that this is a bad idea. I, I, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I just see who the, what the bad guys are for, and I know who the bad guys are, and I'm against it. And now I found out that most of the guys that I thought were good guys aren't good guys either. So, you know, and I would like to know if the delegation here in South Carolina is going to follow Florida suit and maybe can be the grand jury and look into this stuff with the uh, vaccinations and, and where the money went. And, uh, you know, do the same thing Florida did. I'm going to put South Carolina on the map for being conservative, like you said. You know, have a conservative Supreme Court, have a conservative House and Senate that looks into that. I would also like to don't have these uh, school superintendents and all brought, brought in front of uh, 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 yeah, brought out to ask them, hey, man, why did you shut down these schools? Is anybody going to pay the price for what they did to our kids? And what if this vaccination is killing our kids? You know, you know let's, let's, let's get this stuff out in the open. They, nobody wants anything brought out into the open. And then, you know, you're talking about insurance. I'm go- my goal now is to never, ever, if I can help and pay any health insurance to any traditional health care, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield is a monopoly here in South Carolina. I'm looking right now at going with uh, Christian MediShare. And it, I'll tell you, it looks like it may be, might be the way to go. Because right now, for the, my, my wife and I are paying for health insurance, heck, I could buy a house. It's the, um, thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. The health insurance premium is the most expensive line item in about 40% of American families. Think about that, guys. We, we live in a home, we drive a car, but your health insurance premium 
Rev's nodding his head because he's uh, complained to me recently about some increases, and I've lived it. I mean, I've tried to figure every other way out of dealing with the monopoly, but it's hard. I mean, it's complicated because, once again, government has given them, given them the authority to, to kind of be a, a monopoly. Um, Breeze is talking about the vaccine. Figured he would. Um, I did read yesterday, kind of an interesting um, factoid. 28% of Americans, and here's exactly the way the question was phrased, 28% of Americans suspect someone they know died from adverse events caused by the COVID vaccine. Stew on that for a second, guys. Now, being suspicious is not knowing. Well, and I think that's an interesting word. 28% of Americans suspect someone they know died from an adverse event caused by the COVID vaccine. Count me as one of those 28. I'm going to absolutely count me as one of those 28%. There's too many things happening that there's too much uh, heart malfunctioning going on with young people around the world to, to convince me that uh, something's not something's not right here. We've had the opportunity to speak to several medical professionals off the record around the state. Rev knows these stories. And I mean, they've always been deeply concerned. They've always been alarmed to the point of, of you know, wanting to say something, but, but convinced that their livelihood is at risk if indeed they were to say something. I wonder when some of these medical professionals are willing to say what they wouldn't say then. And I get it. I mean, your livelihood's at risk. I understand it. I think everybody gets that. I mean, very few people are going to walk that plank, right? And, and we understand it. Good life, good livelihood. Spend a lot of money to become a doctor. Owe a lot of money, you know, in education debt. I mean, I, I get all that. I understand all that. It's easy to say, well, I would do this or I would do that. But if you're walking in those shoes and you're a medical professional, it, it's hard to go there. I mean, I would imagine it's hard not to go there because there's constant battle internally that you're dealing with. Uh, the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, <laughs> this is the hypocritical oath. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a kind of an inside joke with Rev and I. But, um, but, but we've had several that have reached out to this show saying, hey, you know, you, you're kind of, you're, you're on the right trail, so to speak. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a biologist. I mean, I don't have any understanding of the complexities of a vaccine and how it interrelates with the human body, uh, what's good, what's bad, what it's, I mean, I think vaccine implies immunity as far as I'm concerned. So we know there's been a misrepresentation of what the vaccine does, but the, um, the danger of the vaccine, I mean, we've talked a lot about the effectiveness and efficacy, not the same thing of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Now we're actually talking about the danger of the vaccine. Yeah. I saw a meme. Hey, what is the cure for the vaccine? <laughs> you know, if you've been vaccinated well, and you're, you're under the age of 40, What's the cure for that? Let's go to the phone. Tim in North Carolina. Good morning, Tim. Morning. Ken, I got some homework for you for this weekend. Yes, sir. Uh, Brunson versus Adams lawsuit. Um, I think you need to look into it. It's, uh, Give me a little more than that. Brunson versus Adams. Yes, sir. It's uh, a lawsuit. It's uh, supposed to be taken up by the uh, Supreme Court today. I'll have you check into it. Uh, I'll listen on the radio okay thank you appreciate that got homework now yeah i had decided to sit by the fire drink me some jefferson's ocean to watch some nfl football tomorrow but being the true servant that i am i've got homework so jefferson's ocean will have to wait the fire will have to wait and the nfl football 
we'll have to you wait. Can't you multitask? You can yeah. do all four. And I can't put my mind. Uh, Jefferson's Ocean gets you. Look, no, man. I got you. It's hard to. It's hard to <laughs> do politics when you're when you've got a bottle of Jefferson's Ocean uh, by your side. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I love to watch people work. You got, you got Freehold over there working. We got calls coming in. You got a, a scheduled Fox call. Got a guest here, Jerry Yarborough on Florence County Council is with us. Uh, Red you, you make it sound like it's a rare thing to well, look, I mean, look well, around the room and see rare, people working. Rare for me to see you guys scramble as hard <laughs> as you are. To you. Um, but but do we have our Fox call yet? Uh, I think so. Let me okay, see. you think so. Yeah, I'm waiting okay. for the... Rev the, thinks yes. we do, so let's yes. wait until Rev says yes, we do. I just need confirmation and okay. yes. So you We're got confirmation. Yes, sir. Okay, we have with us former special assistant, to President Donald Trump, America First Policy Institute Chief Communications Director Mark Lauder. Mark, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? So I have speculated, which is all I can do because I don't know anything, but I've speculated that we're closer than some believe with Chip Roy and and Kevin McCarthy. Roy's asking for concessions that I very much support as it regards in regards to the, the appropriation subcommittees and the rule committee. Am I close? Am I on base? What do you think? What are you suspicious of? Or do you know things that we don't? Well, there was a, there was a, uh, a deal put on uh, paper last night uh, with, uh, the, the, with McCarthy and the group of holdouts. I know some of them are looking at that overnight. And this morning it's being reported that it's enough to get a number of people to switch back into the McCarthy column. Whether it's enough to get him to 218, I don't think so. But I do think it'll get him a lot closer. That shows momentum. Uh, and I think we're nearing the end of this, whether it happens today or early next week. That's really going to be the question. What does this say, Mark, about the Republican Party today? Well, I think it says two things. One, you know, this is what debate and, and democracy looks like. But, you know, I, I think we should be very clear. This is not about policy. This is about power and politics. And it's about the swampiest thing you can do. When you look at what the, the 20 holdouts or so, especially a few of them are asking for, it's not about major policy. They're all in agreement on the policy. They want seats on committees. They want rules changes, which for the most part, with, you know, Kevin McCarthy has already said, we're going back to what they call regular order. Uh, but what they want is they want to be able to gum up the works uh, as a small minority. I mean, let's be honest, 20 percent or 20 people out of 200 is 10 percent. 90% of the party and that membership is with Kevin McCarthy. They're asking for more power, more speakerships, more seats on committees, which is basically just a D.C. swamp play. Is is 90% of Republicans okay that we've not budgeted since 1997? Well, part of that is because obviously it takes both it takes both chambers to do it. And and even if the House were to pass all 12 appropriations bills and spending bills, which Kevin McCarthy has long said he planned to do and most of the chairmen have said that they plan to do, if Chuck Schumer sits on it and you're going to find yourself, you know, post Thanksgiving before Christmas coming down to needing to, you know, to pass one big bill to get it through. I mean, that's why the process is gummed up. We've, we've passed budgets before. They proposed budgets, and they sit there and they go nowhere. But then also look at this. I mean, if these same five or 20 uh, House Republicans don't like a, a budget proposal or if their amendment to a budget proposal goes down, they can stop it, which also leaves you in the fact that you've got at the end of the day fund the government. And you're going to have to negotiate with Democrats because they control the Senate and they have the White House. So you know, you're, you're going to have to at some point 
take some pills you don't like just to keep the lights on and keep government moving. How how unfortunate is Kevin McCarthy today to I, I don't I've said on the air and I'd love to get your take on this. Um, I think it's unfair to lump McCarthy in with McConnell. McConnell's had an opportunity as majority leader to do certain things he didn't. McCarthy's never been afforded that opportunity. How much is McCarthy paying for McConnell's sins, I guess is what I'm asking. No, I think very much so. And, I mean, you know, you, you hear talk about the omnibus, the, the $1.7 trillion boondoggle. Well, that wasn't Kevin McCarthy. I mean, that was Nancy Pelosi as Speaker and Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer passing that monstrosity. So to blame Kevin McCarthy for that is, is you know, completely uh, misguided. Also, when you look at it, look at what these, these 20 or so, or at least the ones that are out there publicly on television saying, when asked, well, who would you support? None of them have given a name or a serious name. And, and I think it was Matt Gates yesterday who even said, well, if we get to that point, we'll start this process all over again. Proves it's not about the policy. Proves it's about Matt Gates and that group wanting their seat at the table. They want, they want their power. And if it were Steve Scalise or whomever is next, they're going to start this entire process of negotiating and demanding and holding out next. Interesting. Do you think McCarthy eventually gets the votes, and does he get 218, or does he get to 213 with some present votes? Uh, I think he does get the votes. Uh, probably be closer to 216, 215, somewhere in that area. I think there's a couple of uh, Republicans even who are out uh, for legitimate reasons, and then you might have some present votes there. You, you just know that Matt Gates and Warren Bobert are never going to vote for McCarthy, so they're always going to be no. Well, this is their time to shine. I mean, they get television time. They get radio time. They get a, a chance to be relevant in a world that they're normally fairly irrelevant. Uh, Mark, I believe this. I think we had Ralph Norman on our show a few days ago, and Ralph really articulated why he's a holdout. And I think it's reasonable. I think there are five or six or eight or ten that are very reasonable in their protest. And then there's an element out there, as you said, and I think I'll agree, that are simply publicity seekers, want to na- make a name for themselves, and uh, and this is the only way they can be relevant. But but I do believe there are a, a somewhere north south of a dozen that that, that, that that seriously want to try and see McCarthy make some concessions that makes the House better serve the American people. And I think that's probably what you're going to see break today. Uh, that from everything that I'm reading and hearing is that that group is probably the ones that are going to move over today back into the McCarthy column if they accept this deal that was on the table last night. And then that puts the pressure. You're back down to, you know, that five or six or so holdouts of who knows what they want. But let's let's be absolutely clear. You know, this is not America first. America first, and it's not moving the America first agenda of securing the border, lowering gas prices, dealing with inflation, or holding the Biden administration accountable. You know, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, Newt Gingrich, I mean, how many leaders of the America first movement have said, get on board with Kevin McCarthy, and and this small holdout group is not? Well said. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I mean, he's hearing some of the same information I'm hearing, mm-hmm. but I, I hear there was a deal offered last night. Um, I never heard whether the deal was accepted or not because I go to bed early because I get up early. But um, we'll see today how that plays out. I predict McCarthy gets north of 213, uh, becomes speaker today or tomorrow. And and I think it's, you know, we, we got to understand, guys, folks are motivated by different sorts of things. And I think the Chip Roy wing of the, let's call the holdout movement, I think they're more sincere and more serious about some of the concessions they're asking um, the speaker want to be to make, and I think eventually um, we get there with that 
11 or 12 members of the uh, of the House. Jerry Yarber, Lawrence County Council member, is with us today. Jerry and I have a, um, uh, a similar life experience serving in a rural county council district dealing with the um, the water issue. And, Jerry, I've tried to inform our listeners. Um, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing And, and I, I've tried to, as best I know how, to inform our listeners. There's kind of a unique situation in Florence County. Florence County decided to sell its water system to the city of Florence. Well, all of a sudden, you've got the city of Florence owning a water system, and, and people still have jobs to do by representing rural districts in the county, and it makes it incredibly complicated, difficult to try and provide some of the uh, critical infrastructure like water to some of these folks in uh, in rural areas have you have you um encountered those same challenges yes sir uh that was actually one of the things i campaigned on was the residential fees for the tap and the gallonage rate and how to address it and change it because there really is no representation for the county resident when it comes to water if if they if the bill's raised up just like a tap fee is $3,400, they can't vote that councilman out because that councilman's in the city. So that, so it's, you know, when you look at these charges, it's easy for the city to do it because there is no repercussion. If, if the city raised the city residents up to $3,400, they could oust, they could change the whole council, the whole mayor. And this has been a long going uh, issue. This is not something that was created yesterday. This was not something created a couple of years ago. This actually started in 2002. So as my simple mind thought, well, if I go back to the beginning and I understand the story where it started, it may would make sense. So I requested a copy of the contract where the actual sale was done and it didn't make sense and it still don't make sense. And it made it even a little bit more confusing for my simple mind, probably because I'm not a lawyer. But in 2002, the city of Florence sold the the county sold the city of Florence the water for three million seven hundred twelve dollars. No, three million seven hundred twelve, three point seven million dollars. I'm not used to figures that big. There you go. I, I'm on a different level. <laughs> and if you read the contract, most of the protection for the county residents you'll find is only at the term of the lease. So they leased it for about ten years. Well, after they leased it, it was no bars hold. So when I when I start collecting figures and I start asking the city annually on the on the difference between the way it was explained to me, if the county resident was charged equal to the city of Florence, out of that fifty something million they collect in revenue out of the water, they would lose about seven million dollars. So that's what I'm looking at as profit. I don't know if that's what you consider sure. profit, but that's what I look at. It's an at. upcharge. Yeah, it's an upcharge. So if they sold the city, I mean, yeah, if they sold the city, the water system for 3.7 and its annual revenue was $7 million, they've already made their money back. So why do we have to continue? And the water system is a utility. Your power bill is regulated. Right now, Duke Energy is trying to raise it, I think, 17%. And they're riding around to each town and each district, and they're having to have a hearing. They're having to have some kind of regulation so that they just can't have the monopoly on it. Well, the city of Florence raises the county and puts fees on them all the time with no oversight, no representation for the people in the county. Well, as I campaigned on it and I studied on it, I got the opportunity to go before the mayor and a few other councilmen and request that the fee be lowered. Is this in the intergovernmental 
It is. Subcommittee or work committee they have? That's right. Okay. So, so the county and the city have an intergovernmental uh, committee to work together on some of these issues. And the the city— the I'm way surprised was, you got to appear, but continue. It, I'm yes, sorry. Sir. And, and that's very true. <laughs> um, when I was told about the water system, they said, well, we've requested it before and it hadn't been awarded. So— the, the people that are in the city now were not there when this was created, were not there when, when all these issues were come about. So they're sort of just in their lap. But when I carried it to them and I explained to them, and I actually, I was nervous. So I actually wrote it down what I requested of them. And if you'll give me just a second, sure. I'm just going to read it so y'all understand exactly what I did ask them. Well, I yell and scream and complain, but our listeners well, I, are used to me doing that. I mean, I, you, you bring a little credibility that, yeah. to it. I know you're not. That's why. That's why you'll be more effective than I than I normally am. But but go ahead, Jerry. I I wrote good morning, city and county council members, and let me first say thank you for the opportunity that you have been give, you have given me to speak on this subject. I personally know the benefits of having a good Gold Star service of water the city provides through the water system and the ability it has to impact the quality of life for each resident. So today I would like to speak to you on behalf of the tap and per gallons fee, just as all of us are aware, there are unintended consequences for decisions we have made. It is not my belief that when the tap fee was set for $3,400, the consideration were single mothers and elderly and people on fixed incomes. Per $129 more a gallon, and for a structure that has been completely outside the city limits. There are services that are shared provided through the county, through the residents of the city and county, and the charges are the same for each residence, no matter what side of the street they live on. There is a grant the county has requested to expand the water system in the greater Cusack community, totaling the request to expand the services of water in the in the greater Cusack community around $4 million. And a part of our focus was improving the system by getting larger pipe connecting loops. If we are able to receive this grants and enhance the system in this community at no cost to the city, having a quality in the price and encourage growth, not just to the borders of the city limits, but the entire system. I'm simply asking today for the city council to revisit the fee amounts and see if there is are ways to close the equality gap between the two fees. I greatly do appreciate your consideration on this matter. And a lot of times that focuses just on the residential. Okay, but what? how was that received? I mean, were any adjustments made? Well, I mean, obviously they listened to you. They gave you a chance to appear. I get that. The, but but were, what was any, were any concessions made to county water users? The mayor advised me that they had paid for an advisory count, uh, advisory committee or council or I don't know what you would call it, but they were advised for a 10-year plan. So she said for 10 years that the price is locked. There's no adjustment. So they, they wouldn't really bring it to the city council for 10 years. So, But in this advisory, I think it includes rate increases. So... It's only going to get worse. Hold on for a second. I want to take a break. But, I'm, Jerry, can you stay with me until the top of that? Jerry Yarborough, Florence County Council member in the Timmonsville District. What district yeah. is that? District 4. District 4 is with us. Uh, and this is something important to most people who live outside of the city limits who have city water. I mean, you, your water is being provided by the city. You don't live in the city. You're paying a much higher rate and a much higher tap fee. 
to get the exact same water and the exact same tap. Mm-hmm. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Councilman Jerry Yarber of Florence County Council is with us this morning. The thing Jerry's trying to explain, guys, is we have the county owned the water until 2002. The county sold the city, the water department. I have no idea, or the water system, and I have no idea. why. It's almost like the Louisiana Purchase of Thomas Jefferson. It was that good a deal for the city and that bad a deal for the county, but it did. I mean, it, it's no pun intended, water under the bridge um, now. <laughs> what Councilman Yarbrough is struggling with is trying to make economically feasible the ability to provide water to people in the rural areas. Um, when I was on county council, here I'm again, when I'm on county council, I worked with Pamplico Water Department, the Johnsonville Water Department. I couldn't work with the Florence Water Department because they never deemed it economically feasible. Jerry, you're in a rural area. You're dealing with rural clientele, so to speak, a rural constituency. Um, has the city, I don't want you to throw anybody under the bus. I'll do that. Has the city of Florence been um, willing to work with you in a um, in an economically feasible fashion to provide water to some of your citizens? No, no, it, it's still the, it, the fee is what it is. The gallonage rate is what it is. Uh, they're, they're not willing to, they have a 10 year plan and they're not willing to budge off of their 10 year plan. And, and you know this, but what the, I mean, I'm not trying to beat up on one government over the other, but it is what it is. Well, what the city does is take the tap fee and the water rate and incentivize or, you know, just encourage people to annex. That's right. And, and every bit of their system and the way they do it is to grow the city. It's, it's nothing else and nothing more than that. So if we took in perspective, if you're a commercial building and you have to pay a tap fee and you have to have a sprinkler system, well, a tap fee for a commercial building is somewhere around $6,000. And if you have a sprinkler system, you have to have a separate tap for it. So that's $12,000. So if you're a small business and you're going to sell uh cookies and drinks to the public you got to come up with twelve thousand dollars to tap into the water system to have a required public bathroom so what sort of options does county i mean you're a county council member you Mm -hmm. know the deal i mean this is the hand you're dealt you got to play it the best you know how what what is councilman jerry yarber and other members of county council considering and how to better provide water to rural areas well i i think everything has a process and a proper way of doing it so the, the first thing we had to do was just like in anything, going back even to the Bible, first you ask. So, I, you know, the intergovernment meeting made it where we're able to ask. Now we need to research and find out what other options because they're not willing to change. So we need to know what options are available. What, what ways can we represent the county constituent? Um, does it have to come from the state? Does the state have to get involved and make changes or maybe pre- or put some pressure on the city to make them make some changes? Uh, if the rates go up any higher, it'd be easier for you to buy a used car than to tap into the water system. And two weeks ago, I was in Savannah Grove. Uh, they had a meeting out there, and there was two elderly women there. Um they have a fixed income, and they said it was $3,800 is what the city told them to tap into. Well, if you're what a, would that tap cost if you were a city resident? If you were a city resident, it would cost you about $1,600 or $1,800. So, for, so, so the same tap the exact same in tap. the city in on the one city. side of the road is 1600 Right. That same tap on the other side of the road of the county is 3800 That's exactly okay. right. It, and the water... The water lines are already there. So you'll hear a lot of city people or you'll hear a lot of people that understand how the water system works. They go, well, it costs more to pump water way out there in QZX. 
it's going to cost extra money to get it there. Well, since the city bought the water system, they haven't run any extra water lines. The only water lines they've actually ran has been in the city. None of, they've put no money in the infrastructure. So you take a county residence, just like the Deer Road project we're coming up, if we put $4 million, we're, the county taxpayer is going to pay for every bit of that line, taps, everything to be paid, and the city's just going to collect the money. They're not going to push the water any further. They're not going to get any extra. And you, you go back to even the hydrants. So the city stance on fire hydrants have been, hey, we're in for consumption of water, not fire protection. So we've had an issue with hundreds of hydrants being out of service. And uh, Mr. Osterman, uh, he's the only one that's actually ordered hydrants and started actually working on the actual problem. But for a long time, the city's take on it was, hey, we're just in the business of selling water, not fire protection. Well, when you bought the system, the fire hydrants were there. Yeah. You know, you knew what you had when you got it. That, that's very well explained. Jerry, thank you for your time. Appreciate yes, you sir. coming by this morning. That's Jerry Yarborough, Florence County Council member, telling you how much fun it's be on county council you know, <laughs> thank you try, well i mean you're trying to provide a service a very critical service to your constituency and it's almost impossible you're at the mercy of another government agency that you have absolutely no control over take a break back in a minute Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number got two of the trifecta got senator mike rickenbaugh representative jay jordan both with us this morning good morning fellas how are you good morning, morning. so let's um let, let's begin with the national politics and I guess I'll get your take. You get to play pundit here for a second and not elected representative. Um, I'm led to believe from an inside source in Washington, you guys are my insiders in Columbia, but uh, kind of a, um, a source I have in Washington texted me last night after I'd already gone to, gone to bed, said we're close to a deal. And this morning we've been led to believe that Chip Roy has convinced 12 members that if Kevin McCarthy makes a couple of concessions, and they've been fairly close on these concessions, that um that he can bring i guess his crowd with him and uh, and put mccarthy over the necessary 213 it'd be some present votes and the two i doubt it gets to 218 but it'll get north of 213 with some present votes um you guys are in a in a in an elected body um you know what it's like to be in the minority at times and i'm not talking about the minority republicans run the chamber but but your philosophy your mindset i mean abortion comes to mind you know there's been a, a kind of a contrasting debate about abortion but um but, but I've tried to say the last couple of days, Jay and Mike, that the reason you guys don't get in your, don't get yourselves in the place Washington does, there's a balanced budget amendment. Um, you've got to explain to the people of South Carolina what money you're spending, why you're spending it, and it's in full view. Now, now you can decide whether to watch Seinfeld or keep up with politics. That's a, a decision you make. But in Washington, we've not budgeted since 1997. We've done 4.5 CRs per year since 2006. Uh, 27 omnibus bills have happened since then. And what Chip Roy, and uh, and I'll say this, Mike and, and Jay, there are some in the House seeking attention. I mean, the Matt Gateses of the world, the, the, the Lauren Boberts of the world. I mean, you can like them or not, but they're they're normally near a microphone or a camera. And um, but, but I think Chip Roy and I think uh, a few others have made a valid – um, case that we've got to get back to budgeting. We've got to get the um, the rules committee back in a place where it does have conservative conservative influence. Um, how much more difficult is it? Um, uh, 
excuse me, Mike, I'll start with you. How much more difficult is it? Well, I mean, you've not done it. Let's start with Jay, because Jay's been through several budgets. I mean, uh-huh. I'm serious. I, I want people, I want people yeah. to understand this. What was that wink you gave me? Well, I mean, no, no. Hey, full disclosure, we ate lunch together earlier this week, and we talked about the budget um, and how to better understand the budget. But, 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 Jay, the reality is in Washington, you get to spend $45 billion for Ukraine without really explaining where the money come from, came from and where it's going. Columbia is uniquely different. Explain to our listeners as you begin the budget process, how public it is. Well, so, so many things are different, thankfully. And you said, you know, we're Columbia insiders and not Washington. And thank goodness I'm not a Washington insider. I can't think of many things that would be more difficult on your, your life or your family to be going to Washington with all the issues they have. Um, you know, we go to great lengths. Uh, I wish Philip was here uh, to explain. He's on the Ways and Means, the Budget Writing Committee. Um, everything about it is public. You know, you, they have meeting after meeting after meeting. He's he's meeting right now. Uh, the reason why he can't be here today, it's a good thing for Florence that he is on that committee. That that committee, their leadership is meeting to start organizing their priorities because we go back into session next week, and you don't just show up and say, what are we going to spend the money on? They, they organize and get prepared and plan as to what are the financial, fiscal, responsible priorities for the upcoming budget year. And then from there, you have a subcommittee process. And you go through public hearings, allow the public to come speak on the different areas of the budget, whether it's higher education or whether it's um, you know, law enforcement or whether it's transportation. And all those are public hearings. And, all, and you can either tune in, you can show up, you can speak if you want to, if you're a member of the public. And we have that subcommittee process. And from there, it goes to the full committee process. And while the public can't speak at that level of the process, uh, it's public. And you get to see the debate hashed out in the full committee process. And then from there, it goes to the floor. And we, we spend several days, usually in the week, the month of March, debating and going through the budget painstakingly at times for, for days, going through the process of allocating the, the taxpayer funds of the people of South Carolina. So I'd say at every level, it's extremely public. It's extremely, I wouldn't say it's easy to understand. You know, I'm one of those, when you start talking about money, you know, it can get complicated quickly, especially a lot of money, especially taxpayer money. But it's the great links are going to make it very public, very transparent, and very the opportunities are given for people to weigh in. And Mike, you got elected after the budget last year, am yeah. I right? I was sworn in after the budget. So yeah. this will be the first budget process that you go through. What are you looking forward to? What are you anticipating? What are you nervous about? Yeah, I, fortunately, I'm, I have a much higher degree of comfort right now. Sharice and I went and met with the the Senate Finance staff. Um, ironically, the the staff during the off season is still there. And you can meet with them. And we spent three and a half hours with them. And Mike Sheely. Okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. And, and we said, folks, like, we run businesses. Our background is accounting. And we have a business acumen. We know how to run a small business. Help us understand the state's budget process. And God bless them. Three and a half hours later, in 125 slides and a packet of information, they walked through the process. And I think what I'm most encouraged about is the transparency. I mean, that's one thing I hear from consumer or from citizens so often is I don't always mind paying taxes, but I do mind paying taxes and not knowing where those dollars are going. And even when you get to the the projects that the governor will eventually veto some of them, and then it'll come back to the Senate and to the House, and we'll have an opportunity to review each one of those projects. And are we going to sustain the veto or override the veto? And we can get granular into tell us about this project and the different legislator will have to go to the well and explain the merits of that project for us to vote on it. 
that's the way the process should work because people work too hard for those dollars. Jake? I just want to add one more thing to that. That's very well said. You know, the other thing that's interesting, you mentioned it a second ago, Ken, we have a balanced budget you know, um, requirement in our, in, in South Somebody Carolina. will make a projection about how much money you guys have to spend. It'll be very, very close. And that's it. And that's it. And then, so Mike just gave you a good analysis of the different projects and the different process by which we allocate these funds. And it comes to a point where you get in the process and you realize, you know, if I'm going to get this for Florence, I'm going to have to take it from Columbia or another player. Or if Columbia is going to get this, they're going to have to take it from Florence. And that's where it gets interesting and becomes the capabilities of the people you send to fight for those hard-earned taxpayer dollars. And to understand, I told Rev a second ago, um, Bose makes this wireless speaker, and I'm going to get me one today. <laughs> well, that, that's my money. You know what I mean? That's my. You don't get to. Uh, you don't get to decide. Hey, Jay Jordan wants this, or Mike Rickenbaugh wants this. I mean, it's what is best for the area. Philip said something, and I'll let you guys elaborate. Philip said something kind of interesting at lunch the other day when he said, "You know, we felt you guys collectively felt that you know investing in economic development was something that needed to be done." We've had a major announcement since then. That seems to be a wise investment. Um, the second thing you guys talked about was employment workforce, training of workforce, educating of workforce. Walk us through how you convinced the state of South Carolina, the other members of the General Assembly, to support your wanting to provide um, better educational opportunities for people to provide a better work. Is that the priority of you two guys? And, and kind of walk us through what you think needs to be done there. So absolutely. When we met the other day and thank you for being in that lunch meeting too. Um, and Mike, thank you for picking up the tab. By the way. <laughs> Only because I can't pick football games very well. I owed that oh, tab. No, oh, no, we're not even. No, that, that didn't count. No, no um, I, I'd say we have some really good things going for us. You outlined what happened perfectly. You know, we, we made a priority that we wanted to help participate in economic development here in Florence. And so we helped bring funds back to Florence to help promote economic development because we believed as a delegation, as individuals, that economic development was the sort of the, t the tide that rises all the ships around you. Um, and now from here, we have to take the next step in that process. The good news is Florence is a lot like South Carolina. We've seen a lot of economic development success across the state over the last several years. And that results in everybody recognizing the next step in this process is workforce development. We have to prepare the people to do the jobs that the economic development brings. So the good news is the entire state is in a position of recognizing um, that that's a priority. I was in a meeting the other day. I couldn't be at the great delegation meeting we had in Florence because I was in a, a chairman. A, um, the speaker called a, a meeting of all the, the chairman of the committees to start prioritizing some of the agenda for next week. Um, and one of the big things we talked about was workforce development. We have to begin to take that next step and make sure that the people of our areas are ready to, to, to go to work when these great new jobs show up. The other thing that we have going for us, and I, we talk about this all the time in the Florence representatives that go to Columbia, one of the things we talk about all the time is, look, Florence is great, but we're also the center of the PD. And as Florence goes, so goes the entire region of this state around us. We are the engine of a, of a region. And so that argument means something to the, re to the rest of the region, but also the rest of the state. And I believe will help us 
prepared in the workforce. And Mike, these guys have a job to do in the House during the budgeting process. The, the budget originates in the House. It gets to the Senate. It's your baby all of a sudden. So, I mean, is there, is there, are, are the three of you looking at things, maybe not exactly the same way, but in similar fashion? We are. And I certainly want to cover that. But to Jay's point, which is such a great point, collaboration is the word that I'd use to describe why we got this, this company and vision coming. You know, I, Sharice and I, we had lunch with the site de- the selector and his point to us was if we did not appear to want to collaborate from a city council, a county council, a legislative delegation, the site would not have come here. 1170 jobs is a lot of jobs to fill because you're going to need at least 3000 qualified applicants to get to the 1170. And that's just the first wave of employment right there. They were betting on the come that we were going to be able to collaborate and work together. And for the Department of Commerce to put as much money into this project as they did, Greenville County, Charleston County, Lexington County, a lot of other counties would have raised their hands and jumped up and down for an 800 plus million dollar investment. But they're betting that we can not only provide the workforce, but then the cooperation to help educate and prepare them. That's why it's so important that Dr. Fred Carter, Dr. Jermaine Ford at Tech, Dr. Rich O'Malley and Vincent, all the superintendents of the schools work together to realize we're going to need to generate a level of employee of, of qualified employees like we've never seen before because we want companies who are going to supply Envision to also locate here. We're talking of thousands of jobs, but it's all dependent upon can we provide the workforce. I told Mike, I don't think he'd mind me sharing this. I told Mike it'll be his first budget. I said, make sure there's a line item in the house. You know, <laughs> make sure you don't have to start from scratch. Uh, once you get there, because they're, I mean, it's a seniority system and, and, and Mike's kind of the new guy on the block. And it'd be interesting to watch, but does that make you nervous or are you, are you fairly comfortable in your, your knowledge? And I mean, you talked about sitting out with Mike Sheely and I get that, but there's still the personalities that yeah. you'll have to work through. Yeah. It's relationship building is really what it is. You know, chairman of Senate finance, uh, Senator Harvey Peeler, uh, he, he's in the upstate Cherokee County, but you got to know the first week there, I was like, Mr. Chairman, could I talk to you for a few minutes? I want to know what's on your mind. What's your prioritization? What's important to you? Because it is a seniority-based process. And to have the chairman of Senate Finance in Senator Leatherman for the last 20 years of his 41 years provided a tremendous amount of strength on the finance team. I mean, he was the chairman, but now Chairman Peeler is the chairman. And wanting to make sure he knew that here's what Florence and the PD can provide for the state of South Carolina to help carry the water of the finance team has been tremendously important, but ultimately you got to stay on its good side. You know, those senators in Horry County who tried to take $300 million out of the budget for I-20 or for three, uh, 73, I-73, we see how that went. Not well at all. <laughs> yeah. It's a, um, yeah, it's, it's about relationships. Last question, this segment got to ask Gamecock and Tiger fans are PO'd to the extreme at the condition of I-95. That's a federal highway. I mean, we get that. That's a federal interstate, one of the busiest roads in all of America. But but I've heard from several, you know, non-bomb throwers such as myself that, um, and that these are mild-mannered, you know, t- even-tempered people. That It's hard to understand how 95 can be like it is in South Carolina and then get to Georgia. Um, can the state delegation, can the General Assembly do anything to enhance the um, – the, the, the timeliness of improvements on 995, Jake? Well, it's been something that we've looked at um, 
very closely, especially the last few years. I certainly, like everybody else, heard the complaints. I had one friend that texted me and said he, th- he thought he could have walked to Jacksonville quicker than he drove. <laughs> um, and what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, I was, I was, I was yeah. caught in that mess. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we've looked at it. Un- unfortunately, it's an extremely expensive um, line item to, to pay for. We have taken steps to begin the process. The money has already been aside, uh, set aside to begin the process. Um, Florence actually has one of the few places in South Carolina that actually has a stretch of uh, expanded lane uh, access on 95. But we have set aside money for the funding already in, in prior years to go ahead and begin the process in certain parts of the state. Um, the reality is like any other thing, finding the money to pay for it. In the past, 95 has not been seen as the economic engine. I think, Ken, you were the one we were talking the other day. Florence is about is the major city on 95 in South Carolina. There Florence is, and Waterboro are about it. Waterboro is not a major city. No, you're city. right. <laughs> it's, it's South Florence, Carolina. So Someone argue Florence yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, when you get on you, you get on the interstate in Savannah, Georgia, sure. the sign says Florence that way. You're right. So it, Florence is definitely the, the next um, ne- next uh, dot on the map, so to speak. Um, we're going to have to find a, a way to pay for it if we want to. At South Carolina. You know, we, we went through the heartache of raising the fuel tax as, as our avenue of paying for our roads a number of years ago. Um, the good thing about that is about a third of the money raised comes from out-of-state folks helping pay for our roads. They're using our roads. They should help pay for our roads. You know, we're in an economic um, up upswing. We have been for the last several years, and we've generated a lot of funds, and we've put a lot of money back into our roads and bridges. So I think we'll continue to chip away at it. But whether or not we're willing to reach down and, and pull out the billions of dollars necessary to fully implement a, a expanded 95, I don't think we're quite there yet. Well, I mean, and you've got a bridge over Santee. I mean, I've heard estimates of a billion dollars just to build the bridge, you know, the enhanced bridge over. But it, it's, 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 it, it has to be somewhat of a priority moving forward, Mike. It, it does, but it's going to be also a function of marketing and sales, Ken. And, and I mean within the General Assembly. The upstate delegations – as much as I, Jay and I would both say we enjoy working with them, their concern isn't I-95. They're worried about I-85 and I-26 and the junction up there. Then you get to the Midlands legislative delegation. Malfunction junction is all they want to talk about, a 77 and I-20 through there and I-26. And same thing with the low country. We need to sell and to market the importance of I-95 to the rest of the state. Look at these travelers that are on 95. Look what they bring to our economy. Yes, they're not going through Greenville or going through Columbia as they're on 95 from New York to Miami or back the other way, but they are an economic force. And if we continue to let our roads erode to where people can say they can close their eyes on their I-95 as they're south, and when they get to the Georgia border, they can feel the difference. You don't have to tell them. They can feel it. That's an indictment of who we are as a state. We'll explain. Take a break. We'll be back in just a second. 843-661-0937 is our number. Representative Jay Jordan, Senator Mike Rickenbaugh are with us today. Representative Philip Lowe is working, I'm sure, tirelessly on behalf of the coal miners don't work tirelessly. Construction workers don't work tirelessly. It's only politicians who work tirelessly on behalf of the American people. Is somebody on the phone? Yes. Let's go there. Jim and Florence. Good morning, Jim. You're on with the delegation. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Chief Justice Donald Beatty is a former member of the South Carolina House of Representatives, and he was elected as a Democrat, yet in 2016, he was unanimously uh, elected by the General Assembly to be um, to sit as the Chief Justice. And Jay, I think you were in the House in 2016. Um, one thing 
I constantly hear is we got to keep the politics out of picking our judges, yet um, a former House member is now our chief justice. Uh, Kay Hearn is a liberal Episcopalian who sat in judgment of a case between the uh, Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church, even though she's a member of that Episcopal diocese, <laughs> and yet she ruled in favor of the organization for which she's a member. Um, because she didn't recuse herself, that, I think we have to question her integrity. Uh, Justice Few is a member of the Aspen Institute, uh, which is a left-wing organization that receives money from uh, the Gates Foundation, and we know all the problems uh, with Bill Gates. But um, So, guys, the body for which you all are members continues to demonstrate its failure um, at the appointment of these judges. Uh, you know, guys, for this state to move forward, especially in the area of crime, the General Assembly has got to put the election of judges in the hands of the, the people, which 96% of the rest of the state do. Um, are either one of you exploring that? Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Jay, I'll, um, I'll defer to you for the first answer. Sure. So a little bit, a little bit of background there just to kind of clarify just a little bit. Um, Justice Beatty did, he was elected Chief Justice. Um, uh, he was unopposed, I think, in 2016. That The Supreme Court of South Carolina has a, a longstanding tradition of the senior member is essentially elevated to the, the Chief Justice. While it's in a, an elected technical position, uh, he was unopposed. No one else um, stood to run against him. I think uh, that'll be one of the things that changes. The question I think Jim had in there, or at the end there, was what are we doing to explore changes? I think that'll be one of the things that I think you will definitely see change in the, the not-too-distant future, that process of simply elevating. Um, you know, We're going to say we're not going to just um, elect. If, 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 you, if you're going to send someone unopposed, if he's going to be the only one to run, then we might just – we have to have another election. We might not actually, we just say, well, we're not going to let him. We're going to open it up again and do it again. And that'll be a painstaking task, but it may be the process necessary to make sure we have the most conservative possible uh, judge as the chief judge. Um, the other thing, um, you know, I, I, he is correct. Uh, Don Beatty was in the house well, well before my time um, back in the nineties, I think before he was eventually elected to the court and then um, was reelected several times. Um, you know, I'll say this, and I've said this before. I think we always need to be looking at how we can do it better, uh, and, and that's in every aspect um, of our, our government, whether that's judges or roads or budgeting and all those kind of things. You just gave an example of the chief justice. I think we need definitely need to consider how we go about electing that process. We're in the process of electing uh, just Justice Hearn's replacement right now. Um, in fact, I, I couldn't be there. I was at that chairman's meeting, but the delegation had an excellent meeting the other night. Um, I give a lot of credit to, to those that were able to get there. Representative Lowe worked really hard to put that meeting together, was very proud of our delegation to put that together. And we had all three candidates to the Supreme Court show up um, and speak at that meeting. Um, and I think I can tell you this, there seems to be within the body a, a sincere desire to make sure we get the most conservative candidate elected to that body. Um, I am, as much as anyone, very disappointed in the ruling that came down just yesterday. Um, there's no reason for that ruling. That ruling, it's a complicated legal ruling, but at the end of the day, it's the wrong ruling, uh, overturning, overturning the Heartbeat Act. So we got a lot of work to do. We, we, this is no different than any other aspect of government. We need to find a better path forward, and that needs to be the goal. And I think we will. I think we can, but it's going to have to be a priority, and I think it will and can be as well. Mike, I think some of the frustration, Jim speaks for a lot of who see South Carolina as a very conservative state. I'm supermajority in the House. 
uh, far more Republicans elected than than Democrats. And then Justice Kay Hearn, I'll read it verbatim um, when she said that the um, the state may impose some limits on the right to privacy, but such limitation must be reasonable. It must be meaningful in that the time frame imposed must afford a woman sufficient time to determine she is pregnant and to take responsible steps to terminate the pregnancy six weeks, quite simply, is not a reasonable period of time. I mean, that's her opinion when it comes to her political understanding, or excuse me, legal understanding uh, of the political matter. But but at its, at its surface, it's frustrating for South Carolinians to live in a conservative state and watch the Supreme Court make what they perceive to be a liberal ruling. Yeah, I think the word that I'm hearing from constituents is embarrassed. We should be embarrassed as a state. A ruling like that, which <coughs> takes us back to essentially Roe v. Wade as the law of the land right now until we do something else, is tantamount to what you would expect from California or from an Oregon or from a New York. We're South Carolina. Of 124 state reps, but 88 are Republican. Of a 46 state senators, we've got 30 are Republican. We've got a Republican governor, yet we have a judge three judges, as a matter of fact, out of five who would make a decision that is so egregious and against the moral fabric and fiber of who this state is, is an embarrassment to us. I think Jim's point is very well made. The definition of insanity, we've all heard it, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. The system isn't working right now. To have those three judges make a decision that is so contrary to the average South Carolinian is an example that we're broken. How we fix it is a, it's a question that we need to all be a part of. And that's why the delegation meeting we held Tuesday was so important, having over 140 people there to hear from the judges. You know, Each judge didn't get a lot of time because there's a lot of judges there, but these are the folks that are going to be making these decisions. So one of the, the constituents who was there Tuesday said, well, why is it important to us to hear from these prospective judges? Well, you just saw why it's important to you. We want constituents to reach out to us and say, doggone it. We need the most conservative, true conservatives on the bench making the decisions from the Supreme Court to the appellate court on the way, all the way down. Jay, can we recall a judge in South Carolina? There's a process. It's very difficult. Um, it's much like the federal process. Is it's there any difficult. consideration after this ruling? Well, you know, the good news, here's the good news in South Carolina. We don't, uh, unlike the federal court process, we don't give lifetime appointments. So you know, judges are not essentially anointed for the rest of their days to be a judge so and they is, can go rogue that that's correct and you know look this is not a perfect process there's no such thing i can give you examples of a republican appointed supreme court justices over the years that have not turned out to be you can ask ronald reagan and george um both the bush um, boys judges don't always judge turn Souter out and judge roberts come to mind <laughs> these judges don't always turn out to be what they claim to be or what they're advertised to be and that's not true that's not, not only true at the federal level that's true at every level because you know, you're asking judges to give you a broad opinion of who they are, and they say, well, I'm going to ba- make my decisions based on individual circumstances, which they should to a large degree. Uh, and then you end up with a situation like this where you get, you know, essentially one person making the decision in South Carolina when we're a divided court like we were two and two. And this, and Judge Few steps in and makes a decision that I agree is, is the wrong decision and is in violation of what the, the overwhelming majority of South Carolina believes and wants. Mike, other than politicking, and um, and that's what you guys do, I mean, and that's your job to do that. Is there anything substantive we can do to address the ruling that you feel is in such contrast to the will of the people? Yeah, I think when we go back into to session next week, uh, what I'm hoping happens, Ken, is that every one of the senators and every one of the state reps steps back and realize 
this isn't just a policy matter now. This isn't about the budget. Do we spend a little more here, spend a little more? Those are important questions to answer. But this is these are lives in the balance. You know, my mom was 14. Right? She easily could have aborted me. Same thing with our son. His mom was 15 when we adopted him. Like, we're talking about lives that will be lost each day that we diddle and that we don't make a decision on how to move forward here. So nobody's going to get everything they want here. But how do we look at how we pass a bill as quickly as possible that is going to be well written so that the Supreme Court doesn't try to hijack it and legislate from the bench? Because, Jay, you're the lawyer in the bunch. I mean, the the, the ruling is that um, your legislation violated the state's constitution. The right to privacy. I mean, I don't want to get too legal here for, but I mean, that's my interpretation of their ruling that you guys created a legislative law that violated the Constitution and a person's right to privacy. Correct. The 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 law of the land, according to the, these three judges, was essentially their that, interpretation. That, that there is a right to privacy contained in South Carolina law, which they are technically correct about that, and that is what they clung to to say. Um, it's kind of an ironic if you look at Few's opinion, which I've, I've looked at now. It's, it's a really a, a strange, uh, logically put together opinion. On the one hand, he says um, the state can affect the right to privacy, but six weeks for a woman, and, and, and in doing so, they can limit a woman's access to an abortion, but six weeks isn't enough. On the other hand, he says if the state were to say outright abortions are banned, period, no abortions, life begins at conception, that probably doesn't violate the right to privacy because you're not saying you get abortion under certain circumstances and we're, you're limiting that right to privacy. You're saying no circumstances. So it's a little bit of a logically tough to wrap your hands around, but that's that's the, the crux of it, that the South Carolina law contains this right to privacy, that six weeks isn't is too much of a violation of that right to privacy for a woman to make a decision on on her her pregnancy and we've said because we're saying it's six weeks she has a right to make a decision it's just six weeks and isn't enough but surely the general assembly will make another effort as a priority to revisit um you're not going to let this stand without additional legislative uh efforts so i'd say two things number one where here's where we are we, we fall back to the pain capable that that was the essentially the the, the pro-life law before heartbeat bill and that so we're back to pain capable which is essentially a, a, a 18 to 20 week ban somewhere in that neighborhood so we're not open season we do have some restriction we're not like some states in the country but at the same time that's a far cry from where i believe south carolina desires to be on this issue um the reality is the second thing i'll say is the pro-life movement and i consider all of us a part of that as those who believe in pro-life issues and want to limit abortion want to you know think abortion's a truly terrible thing we have some soul searching to do. You know, it wasn't that long ago the House passed a bill. The Senate couldn't come to terms on our bill. And, and looking back at it, it was you talk about a, a fruitless exercise. It was it was going to be outside the scope of what the Supreme Court was going to say was 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 legal. But we have to get together. The House and the Senate and the governor have to get together and say we're going to have to get on the same page and find a a viable path forward for for meaningful pro life legislation. And Mike, I got to believe that'll be a priority of yours when you go back in session. Yeah, and that's where collaboration is going to be so important. Some of the the most ardent conservatives that want a complete ban, especially some of those in the upstate, who are also in the same Republican caucus as some of the low country, who are much much more toward a uh, eight weeks, nine weeks. There's going to be some real dialogue of as you consider to dither and argue about this, and you want your own way. 
lives continue to be lost? How do we find an, an area that we can all work together for? We'll explain. Take a break. Back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. Mike Rickenbaugh had a lease. Senator Rickenbaugh had a previous engagement. Senator, excuse me, um, Representative Jay Jordan is still with us here. Got a call on the phone. Let's go there. Ashley, in Poston's Corner, you are on with Representative Jordan. Good morning, fellas. Um, to Jim's point, is there not a way for us to get the judges that are completely against what we stand for and us as a conservative state can we make it easier to recruit to uh to kick those judges out can we write some legislation to make it easier i mean i know people want to try and vote for judges and do a a, a ballot form but at least if we could kick them out easier when they did something we didn't like it would it would appease those people and I'll take it off there. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. Full disclosure, I, I want to I want to say something publicly. Jay and I ate lunch about once a week. We have other lawyers that join us. A couple of other lawyers join us from time to time. We debate this. Jay and I have a disagreement. I think we should elect judges. He thinks I'm asking for more trouble doing it that way. He doesn't think I'm wrong. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Jay's never said, I think you're wrong. He says, I think the way you're asking for it to be done would bring about more trouble than the very imperfect way we do it now. You know, um, that, I think that's well said. At the end of the day, um, I, I always go back to this this whole concept I hear all the time. Every time it's time to run for office, every single person who's never run for office says, I'm not a politician. And the politicians are the problem. And I, my point is on this issue is I'm not so sure making judges into politicians is the, is the path forward. <laughs> You know, essentially having judges going out, raising money, but you're not saying doors. it's wrong. You've never told me no, I'm wrong no, to believe I, that. I, again, I I think we're all in a desire to improve the situation, whatever that situation is. We don't come to the table trying to make it worse. We're trying to make it better. The reality is, especially when it comes to judges, that's one of the hardest things we do. Um, I think South Carolina does it better than a lot of places. I think it does it better than the federal government. Again, just like we talked about earlier, the worst thing I think you could do at this day is this day and age is give a lifetime appointment. Um, you know, the reality, and, and I can give you examples where lifetime appointments have worked out really well. I can give you some examples where they've worked out really poorly. I can give you examples like we talked about a minute ago where, you know, judges claim to be A, B, or C, whether they were getting elected by the public, whether they were getting appointed by the president and approved by the, the U.S. Senate, or whether they were getting elected here in South Carolina. The reality is, is finding justice is a difficult thing to do, and that's what we're asking these people to do. We're putting them through a process to determine are we getting the best person to do that job? Um, and they throw, sometimes we get sometimes we get the right people. Sometimes they throw curveballs and we don't get the right people. Sometimes we get people that are right ninety nine percent of the time. I can, I can go back and look. I, I, if you went back and looked at, I'll just use Justice Few as an example. If you went back and looked at his scorecard, I, I would probably guess based on his circuit court time and his court of appeals time and now his Supreme Court time, he would be labeled as a pretty conservative judge. Uh, he's just gone off the reservation on this particular case and this particular issue. I would wager to say you could use that as more than a few examples of judges that have been conservative or, or been one way or the other and then take, used a particular case to violate and go a different way. Well explained. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Cocky Mike, you are on with Representative Jordan. Hey, I have an extremely important question, and then I have a comment on the last caller's call. 
the extremely important comment is when did Monty Lee go on staff at South Carolina baseball? I didn't, they didn't call me about that announcement and ask my opinion. I tried twice you know? to call you and you didn't pick up, so I went <laughs> I, ahead and did it anyway. I was at the Gator Bowl party and so that's what <laughs> You must have left two days early if you got there, according to what I know about 95. True, true. So that happened last week, I'm assuming? No, he, uh, the week after Clemson let him go. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's been there a while. Okay, well, good. I don't, I, I don't, I kind of don't pay attention during the offseason. Diet is big. He is a hell of a recruiter, and that's good. I, he didn't, he didn't make it as a head coach, but he's still a, a exceptional coach. South Carolina's lucky to have him. Now, talking about judges, okay, you want to talk about how difficult a decision and thing it is? Go back to what the last caller said. He said, so you can throw him out if he does something you don't like. Well, guess what? You don't always like that you know the rule of law doesn't always suit everybody so that's how difficult it is when you're talking about that see the guy didn't even notice that's what he said but he said so you can throw him out if he doesn't like well that's every democrat that is trump and every democrat not not the exact same thing but you know what i'm talking about they don't like what he said he want to throw him out see now take that equation and put it into do you elect him or do you you know select them so y'all have a great week thank you mike i'll I'll say this and i'll let jay jump in because he and i've had this discussion government does some things not so important they do some things that are very important the most important thing government does is have a hand in applying justice i mean period i mean we can debate roads and bridges and uh you know nils and transfer i mean all that matters in our lives in some way shape or form but when a government agency has a hand in applying justice nothing is more important well, and, and Mike makes a good point there. You know, at the end of the day, you go to the courthouse, half the people walk out happy and half the people walk out mad every single time. You know, my wife tells me all the time, why don't you find something, you know, easier to get along with? Politics, everybody, half people mad, law, half people are mad. Do something to make people happy. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. Host a I, radio show? Yeah. I, I, I just kind of have that bent gene. I, I, I kind of like to tussle back and forth. Uh, to tell, I didn't notice Ashley said that, but it sounds so real. You know, what can we do with them once they do something that we don't like? I mean, that's natural. That's all of our natural human instinct and inclinations. Thank you, Jay. Thank we'll you. take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
843-661-0937. There's several things that I really enjoy about life. There there are a lot of things I like a little bit. Some things I don't like, but there are several things that I like a lot. I like beating Clemson in football. Um, That that, that would be... (laughs) That'd be right there with double cheeseburger. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm a complicated man. You know that. I'm yeah. a very complicated man. So um, good double cheeseburger, beat Clemson in football. But I'm telling you, sitting around a fire with a Bluetooth speaker, listening to some good rock and roll, classic rock and roll music with a good bourbon, a good Jefferson's Ocean bourbon in my cup is something that I really hold in high, high, mm-hmm. high regard incredibly high regard it's been a long time since you've been able to enjoy one of those things yeah this past year was the first in a long and, and time. i'm certainly not a snob by any stretch of the imagination but i have conditioned myself to believe that the um that particular bourbon is a higher grade bourbon i mean you've had some of that at my tailgates i mean it's yeah. a better yeah. i mean you would agree it's a better tasting bourbon seems to be you know yeah. not a big you know bourbon drinker and anything, it's a, but it, i've tried it, it. but but I, i'm it i'm does. such a sucker for the story you know what i mean yep jefferson believed you know that if you um if you put the mash in oak barrels and put them in the bottom of a ship and allowed them to slosh around and uh, that salt a little bit of that salt would penetrate the oak and out of that I don't know if any of that's true or not but it's good marketing <laughs> and, I, right. and I'm a sucker for good marketing like anybody else is especially being a um kind of a libertarian leaning Jeffersonian it's easy for me to be um, partial toward. Uh, that particular and i swear and it might just be my mind playing with me but hearing and knowing the story and thinking you taste just the slightest whiff of salt at the end yeah is like okay well, there it's you there. Th- th- you see you just explained it yeah. I mean, the marketing works now now i will warn you that if you're not libertarian and you're a hamiltonian stay away from that stuff because <laughs> it'll make you want to quote the declaration of independence right. i mean it'll have the liberty bell ringing in your head before you before you think about it let's go to the phone well i was gonna say we played an eagles song there um as our song of the day here on friday you're right i did compression hour Mm -hmm. uh we played george Strait last year after after we did away and pushed bruce springsteen to the side so have we officially changed to the eagles being our 2023 uh friday let's do this let's Mm -hmm. do this um 20 the, the the second half of 2022 was george Strait. i mean the first half we were still springsteen right so yes, the second you were. half you were. was was Springsteen. I mean, the second half was George Strait. So the first half of 2023 will be Eagles. And maybe we can get freehold to do this. Maybe we set up a request line on Fridays, and um, because you will not run out of Eagles hits. I mean, I'll assure you with that. Take a while. Um, and then the second half of 2023. Can I get an agreement here? The second half of 2023, we'll play all the hits by Towns Van Zant and Blaze Foley. <laughs> <laughs> all the hits. Yeah. And. and That'll really freak everybody out. That they'll won't wonder, even take a week. They'll say they're not drinking bourbon. They're dropping acid, man. But those guys have really gone off the <laughs> deep no end. Hits. Well, you read my mind. That's exactly what I was thinking. But I was thinking more of something on Facebook than an okay, open that's, But we can figure something. You can handle that. Yep. I mean, you, you, do it however you choose to do it. But we'll take requests on uh, on Friday morning for what uh, what Eagles song that people want to hear at the, in, the, uh, in the 9 there o'clock decompression hour on uh, on friday afternoons and, or friday mornings i'm sorry yeah and if the threshold is it was a hit then uh, towns van zant and blaze foley didn't sing nope, any hits nope nope you're right they were um i don't want to say they were wasted talent they were um they walked to the beat of their own dr- i told you i got a buddy of mine kind of a songwriter uh, he, he's real interested in songwriters and he's uh kind of infatuated with john prine and bob dylan and some of these others so i gave him i actually sent him a youtube video of a documentary you've watched some mm-hmm. of it with towns van zant 
So I see him the next few days, and he goes, like, he's kind of a funny guy anyway, and he goes, and I'm going like, what you getting on the desk for? me?" he said, nah, that's the bottom of the rabbit hole. He said, if you start <laughs> down the it. rabbit hole of singer-songwriter, there's no telling where you end up. Springsteen, Dylan, uh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, but there are a lot of great songwriters who are noted, and then you get kind of the um, the Dean Dillons of the world. You know, nobody knows who they are, but they wrote some of the great songs. Um, I mean, Don McLean wrote American Pie. It's an interesting story about what motivated him. Your guy, Prine. Yeah, John Prine would be another great, great songwriter. Never achieved commercial success, a lot like Springsteen, but I mean, obviously in that same genre. But but if you go a little bit deeper down that rabbit hole, there's um, there's Towns Van Zant and Blaze Foley, and my buddy who loves singer-songwriters said, I'm not sure there's anything below that. <laughs> that may be the bottom of the rabbit hole that is um that is singer songwriter. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jason and Marion. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Dave. Uh, happy New Year. Glad you're all back and hope you had a good uh, time off. Uh, Ken, I have a little fun if you want while you're over this weekend drinking your uh, bourbon. And have you ever heard of Chat GPT? Have not. Oh my goodness. Um, basically, I'm going to give you the very Pampaconian way of describing this. It's basically like an AI chat, and you know how if you go to Google and you type in something you want to search for, it's going to give you a basic answer. Maybe it's going to give you um, some websites you can go to. Well, this, if you ask it a question, it's actually going to answer it for you. So just for fun, the other day I asked it to write me a 300-word essay on quantum physics. And in about three seconds, it had it written out, explained, and everything. Wow. It's called and what? Chat? Chat GPT. Okay. Chat GPT. Yeah, you can go to the, the actual web um, page is chatopenai.com. And you can kind of follow the steps. Well, if you, if you go on YouTube, Jordan Peterson kind of has a little six-minute video kind of when he was playing around with it, and he said it's basically just in the infancy stage, and it's already smarter than us. Wow. And it's only going to get smarter. And he asked it some crazy, where he said write him a three-page essay on something on the Sermon of the Mount compared with something else in the King James Version, and he said it had that thing written out in three seconds. That's crazy. So, it is crazy. It is fun. I mean, I've been playing around with it, it and it's almost—it's like you're chatting with an with an AI because you, you know the chat is kind of like a chat. Like if me and you were texting back and forth, it kind of comes up like that, and you just type in whatever you want to type in. And I mean, it's so advanced that it, it it can make um, websites. I mean, it can do algorithms for you. I mean, I'm just—I feel bad for school teachers because. You know, what's going to happen? I'm sure there's some kids that are right there that already know about it, even though it's only been out for about two weeks. You know, and some kid, you know, needs to write a term paper on something. He's just going to type, you know, the subject in and it's going to have a term paper written out. How is a teacher going to, you know, know how to, if it's really in the student's work? And, I mean, it'll do math problems for you and show the work and everything. But, yeah, while you're uh, sipping on your bourbon this weekend, have a little fun with that. Thank you, Jason. Have a, good, yeah, have a good, good weekend. Thank you for the kind words as well. Um, wel- welcoming us back this week. Um, 
See, that's, that sounds very deep. I, I've been intrigued by, have you ever done the 20 questions thing where it will guess you, it'll ask you questions and you answer them and it guesses who you're thinking I have about. Not. And there's a, Akinator is, is one of those. But um, anyway, this is like next level, obviously, with but, the AI. But Elon Musk says, when people say, hey, man, you're, you're the most innovative guy, the most creative guy, the most uh, entrepreneurial guy, you're the most disruptive guy in the last hundred years of American business and culture and society and politics, Musk always says that, yeah, the electric car is innovative. Space travel is very interesting, but AI is where it's at. I mean, I hear someone like Elon Musk basically say, oh, I'm doing some pretty cool stuff. You're right. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, I'm trying to revolutionize an industry that has been predicated upon a fossil fuel burning internal combustion engine. Um, that's fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, and if you've ever heard Musk talk about space travel, I mean, he understands reverse propulsion and and launch angles and all these, uh, you know, uh, all these things that, that, I mean, I'm like, wow, okay, I'm going back to Blaze Foley and Towns Van Zandt <laughs> now. But, um, but, but he's still, every time he gives one of these lectures or speeches, and he talks for a considerable amount of time, he's got this, it's not an impediment. He's got the same thing that Peter Thiel has. And my daughter's convinced me now. I mean, she's a college student. So she's convinced me now that um, that that Peter Thiel and Elon Musk have a similar speech tick, not an impediment. And you know where I'm headed because they, they, they there's a it's not an ailment. There's a condition that people have whose IQs are completely off the chart that they subconsciously have to slow down because they understand you're not as smart as they are. And it's almost like they don't think they're talking to dummies, but, but and it's subconscious and it's not trying to insult anybody, but, and, and it comes out in that sort of way. I mean, I read a lot about this after she told me, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of research that says that's true, but if you hear Peter Thiel talk, there's this impreciseness that, that you think something's wrong with him. And if you hear must talk, I mean, you've, you've heard him, but he, it's not a stutter. It's not an impediment, but, but it's a tick. And it's like, well, what's wrong with him? I mean, the guy's IQ is probably in the top one-tenth of one percent. I mean, surely he speak clearly. But but my daughter told me, yeah, the, those folks have this issue. And and they try to break their speech down to a to a level that they but they know you're not as smart as they are. That's not arrogant. I mean, that's not arrogant at all. But if somebody said, hey, Elon, do you think you're smarter than most people? And he said, yeah, probably. I mean, that's not arrogant, right? <laughs> hey, Peter Thiel, do you think your IQ is higher than the average American? Thiel would say, yeah, you arrogant SOB. No, I mean, that's no, there's nothing yeah, arrogant it about it. Not? It's absolutely true. I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, they, they were born with a lot more intellectual horsepower than the average American or the average person in the world, for that matter. But, um, but when Musk begins talking about, you know, um, space travel and electric vehicles, it doesn't take him long. And I'm not saying he gets bored with that, but it doesn't take him long to say, man, AI is really where it is. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm interested in all these other things. Um, I'm happy to be a part of making the world a better place, whether it's colonizing Mars. I got a buddy of mine who says, I don't give a damn how smart Elon Musk is. He ain't getting us to Mars. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, oh, you just sound more redneck than I do. But I mean, he's like, I don't give a damn how smart he is. He ain't getting us to Mars. Um, in other words, you can drink that Kool-Aid if you choose to drink that Kool-Aid, but I, um, I'm not, uh, 843-661-0937. Uh, we're going to take a break or we're going to get our, our caller here. Okay. Let's take a break. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number as we, um, continue 
in the spirit of decompression hour Friday afternoon. But Freehold brings me a list here of a lot of different guests. I'm sorry. It's it's afternoon to us. I mean, we're almost, I am, you're not. But I'm almost finished with with the majority of my workload um, today. We, We talked a lot about vaccines. There's a lot of uncertainty about vaccines. One of the most interesting stats I've seen this week, and I want to read it verbatim, 28% of Americans suspect someone they know died from adverse events caused by COVID vaccination. The key word is suspect. Nobody knows uh, much of anything. We're talking about lay people, not scientists, not doctors, not medically trained professionals. Uh, We have someone that can give us a better uh, opinion as it relates to some of that data and statistic that is Geofax chairman and CEO currently working on a vaccine for the coronavirus, David Dodd. Uh, David, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing fine. So all the questions surrounding vaccines, and, and once again, I'm a layperson, forgive my ignorance, but but I always thought vaccine implied immunity. And we get a little further down the road, and I think we redefined vaccination or what a vaccine was and then we had, you know, these variants and and boosters and all. What what sort of advice would you give someone like me, who is becoming more and more suspicious of what I was told a couple of years ago? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I'm not a, a scientist nor nor a clinician, but I'm a, a business person who's been in this industry for forty something years. So I, you know, so I have I have experiences and and certainly I work with a lot of people who know the science but what i would suggest always is ask questions you know don't just accept when someone tells you that this is what you should do i was told earlier this week or recommended i should say i was having my annual physical and the physician said uh, have you had your second booster the bivalent i said no i haven't he said well i'd like to recommend that you have it and i said well i'm not going to take it i said i i have a vaccine in development right now that's being tested also as a as a better booster than what is already out there. And if I take any booster, I'm going to take this vaccine. And so, and, and the reason why I said that is wasn't only because my own uh, you know, pride of, of what we're doing, but also the, I know more about the technology. Our, ours is based on a technology that's been around 30 years and is, is already highly recognized being safe. It's been in people and the current vaccines, the MRNA, that's the Pfizer, the Moderna, those are the brand, you know those are brand new technologies never in a human until we got it in there 10 months after initiating the development program now it was great that we got those initial vaccines because they were sort of like that first stage dike if you want to say about it but now we've seen that there are a lot of little cracks in the dike you know it's not as durable it's not as efficacious it doesn't address the the variance the way uh, we would hope that it would and so there are a lot of questions and we also hear more and more about side effects and and whether or not uh, you know, and my guess is there's a lot of truth to some of those comments, and there probably is a, is a lot of untruths that, that people are wondering about. But but again, it all goes back to um, it, it's your body, it's your health, and, and be sure to answer questions and you know and weigh the the risk versus benefits. That, that's what I would do in, in all such uh, healthcare decisions, unless it's something that's a you know critical element for you. Have the vaccines contributed to the mutations? I don't think so, but I think that the current authorized vaccines may have facilitated that. What I mean by that, and that's different than being a cause or contributed, in facilitating is that the current vaccines are all built around targeting against the antibody side of our immune system, but we also have T cells or cellular immunity. And, and the cellular immunity is, is, is less well understood, 
and yet it with in vaccine uh, development it drives robustness it drives durability and our vaccine that we have in, in human trials right now and advancing is specifically uh, not only targeting antibody just as the current ones but it also includes a very specific targeting of the of the T cells or cellular immunity and the reason why it does that is we're trying to get ahead of the variants before they arise because what we have seen now after after 2 years of about being out on the market with the mRNAs especially is that every time a new variant arises, we chase after that. And by the time we get a, that vaccine sort of tweaked a little bit, we're chasing after another one. And it always seems to be elusive. And, and, and it is, you know, unknown. You know, it's new technology. We're learning about the side effects as we go along. And, and we believe that there's a better way. And, and we're doing a direct comparison right now against both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine among blood cancer patients. That's about the highest bar because it's been documented that blood cancer patients or cancer patients in general are the highest risk uh, group of individuals against COVID-19. They have weakened immune systems. And so we need something that not only is exquisitely safe because their bodies are already weakened, but also would, would do a better job than what we're seeing with the mRNA vaccine. So we're currently in a, a multi-site trial uh, that is continuing to add sites on it throughout the United States, and it's all and we're doing it specifically among blood cancer patients, and and the goal is to demonstrate that uh, we give a more robust, more durable protection, same type of protection against the spike or the the S curve, the antibody side, but also a very strong uh, response to the to the T cell cellular, and, and the initial data is showing just what we had hoped we would be able to see. David, last question. I'm a contrarian by nature. I border on conspiracy theorists about everything that comes down the pike. A recovering politician, host a radio show. I read a lot. I try to understand things from people like you. But but as I progress through this debate about whether or not to be vaccinated, who are the high-risk people, what risk categories uh, were, were most uh, influential in deciding whether or not, I look for a lot of public health experts to debate the issues. After the yeah. fact, it appears that some of that debate was censored. Some of it was not allowed to take place. As somebody who is in that field where, where debate is essential, where, where criticism is warranted, wh what are your comments to someone like me who don't believe we ever were allowed to have a legitimate debate because the public health experts had decided this is the path forward? Yeah, I think the politicization of public health sector, which really became evident, obviously, over the last few years, is, is one of the saddest occurrences um, that, that, that we've seen in the last 40 years. I've been working in this industry, always involved with public health, and uh, generally would, would see the debate. And, and yet you're absolutely, I mean, we all know you're absolutely correct now because the release from Twitter and the information and unfortunately, the debate was basically shut down. And so only now are we starting to see some debate. And so I, I, we naturally are more suspicious today than we were 10 years ago or five years ago. Uh, and so and, and with good reason, too, because there are a lot of good questions. We had technologies that have come forward had never been in humans before. And we uh, were told they were 95% effective. They would last a year. Both of those aren't true, that they were minimal to no side effects. That certainly isn't true. And so here we are today, 
you know, two years out, and uh, the government we're, we're urging them to to accelerate and expand the financing of these next generation vaccines like ours. We're self-financing, and uh, I was uh, recently in, in the White House uh, advocating just for that with a you know with a group of people who continue to uh, to put forth the efforts because we need to look at the alternative technologies and we need to be able to address there are about 15, 20 million people in the United States who have compromised immune systems from either blood cancers, you know, sickle cell anemia, dialysis, some type of condition. And these are the ones that, that are not being treated adequately by the current vaccines. And they're also the ones at the highest risk. So we, we need to be addressing that. David, you explained in, in such a proficient way things that we've tried to to better understand it. I want to thank you for that. Really and truly, as someone who understands the um, the language, the science, the technology, uh, you've just opened a lot of doors and liberated a lot of my of my dispositions. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a great weekend. I'll tell you, that's one of the better guests we've had, guys. I mean, that, that really and truly, that's a guy who could probably speak in a, in a language I don't understand, but was willing to tolerate someone like me and speak in the <laughs> language that I did understand. And I think the essential... The essential issue, as far as I'm concerned, and I had a doctor text me this morning about, you know, some of the information, the 28% who suspect uh, that they may know someone who died of, you know, an adverse reaction to the COVID vaccine. I don't, I mean, suspect, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of suspicions I have. Um, there, there's an element in humanity that is intrigued by suspicion. I mean, I believe that. I think we like to be suspicious. I think our very nature is to you better um, be. Yeah, I mean, you, be, you better be very suspicious, especially with the government. But I think David uh, amplified some of what I've said, that um, had we been allowed to have this debate, the American public would have better understood the pros and cons, the do's and don'ts, but we weren't. And, and I'll always wonder, Rev, um, what the motivation was. I mean, I think I know what it was. It was money. I mean, it was the bottom line. You know, there was a lot of money to be made by, you know, jabbing people's arms with an experimental drug and then boosting and then boosting again and boosting again. And now it's an annual process and it's like a flu shot. You got to have a COVID shot now. And we've accepted that as normal. But, but I believe had we been allowed to have the legitimate debate necessary to decide whether it's the right thing or not to do. Um, and we've had medical professionals tell us that. I, I said earlier, I've, I've had several doctors tell me, I just, I'm not willing to walk that plank. I mean, I've got a good job. I got student debt, you know, I'm an educated physician. I like the life that I've carved out for myself, and I don't want to go against the establishment, you know, the uh, the, the medical cartel, so to speak. And, uh, and I get that. I mean, I understand why someone would be guarded and, and careful about doing that. The most honest opinions, well, I, I don't want to say the most accurate opinion. Most, yeah, probably the right word. The most honest opinion, whether accurate or not, we'll find out. But the most honest opinions were people who were kind of in the twilight of their career and didn't make enough money to, you know, to go home. But, but if you're a younger physician, a younger medical expert, you, you got to be concerned about what the future looks like. If I say these things, I wrote a note down. I was going to talk about it Monday because I think we'll have a speaker. I mean, I think by Monday when we come back in here, Kevin McCarthy will be the speaker. I know I said two days ago there's no way. But, but when I, you know, when some of the information I heard yesterday, it yeah, leads me to believe. Deal, it it leads me to believe that Chip Roy, who is one of the serious, you know, uh, voices of dissent, when, when Roy says that I can bring 12 with me, I think 11 with him, uh, if you'll agree to this. And I think McCarthy's back to the corner. And I think McCarthy could be a good speaker. I think McCarthy's been taught a hard lesson. Now, ain't nothing wrong with humility. 
Don't move it. Don't move it. I'll tell you this, and I, I'm I'm a son of a gun. I'll, I'll level with you. There's no way I'd vote for him unless he took his stuff out of that office. Really? I just think just that, because that, of that, the, that reeks of arrogance. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm just entitled to this. I deserve this. How dare you get in my way? I mean, I've done everything required. I put every check in every box at every turn. It's my time to be speaker. And and I, I, I'm, I'm stubborn about things like that. And I would be real stubborn. I said, Kevin, if you hadn't moved your stuff in that office, I'd be for you. Well, that's silly. It might be. But I think you've got to understand that people can be silly. I think it's silly you moved into I the mean, office well, before it, he th- there you go. was entitled to Arrogant. It. I mean, very, very entitled and arrogant. But I made notes to myself yesterday about, you know, next week's shows. And if we indeed have a speaker, and if we've got a new oversight chair, a new judiciary chair, what are we the people most interested in? Behind door, we're, we're Monty Hall and let's make a deal. You ready? Behind door number one is Twitter FBI. Behind door number two is COVID origin, the truth of the vaccine. Behind door number three is the Biden crime family. You only get one door. But what door do you open? I mean, I, I kind of want to go down that road Monday, and I'll, I'll prepare better and have some nuggets of information because I think we'll have a speaker by Monday when we get here, and I don't know we will. I suspect we will. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Here's uh, Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, so – you just had a gentleman on talking about the, the COVID vaccination and, you know, you suspect that, you know, there's issues. I mean, when you talk about these investigations that uh, the new leadership is going to bring in in Congress, I mean, be just intellectually like honest, you know, who changed the regulations and did away with the discourse and the normal procedure. For vaccine development, you can't, Jeff. But I don't think no. And you know, I'll give you plenty of time. But I got to respond to that. I've never said that the vaccine was an RD issue. I've never said that. It it was an. It was. It was the government allowing a deal to be made with 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 big pharma. And I think both parties. And I think you'll agree with this. Trump was president. Sure. I mean, Trump was president. And the so. But but I've never implied that the problem with the vaccine or, or the COVID story was partisan. Yeah, I, I, I agreed. But, but when you, when you, t- when you, when you just make your statements the way you did, I hope you understand how Ken, you're a believable guy. You know, people listen to you and, and, and take away, take your opinion and, and hold it in high regard. But part of that story, you have to go back and acknowledge is, the administration did no wrong. I'm not saying Trump did anything wrong, but it was Trump. And when we talk about now questioning the efficacy of how the vaccine was and, and shutting down the discourse, the discourse was shut down and it didn't, the normal procedures didn't happen because Operation Warp Speed. And that's okay. That's a good thing. See, and we disagree okay. there. I don't think that's a good thing. Well, and, and, and that's okay. That's a good debate to have. I'll agree. But don't don't, don't put this on academia and and the 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 people at the the pharmacy, the uh, drug companies. Uh, let me let me ask you a question, okay? But let me ask people. you this. Now, I'd love to get your opinion of this. Sure. So let's make the assumption that government gave carte blanche, that government cleared the runway. Nothing's in your way, big pharma. 
Nothing's in your way, academia. Nothing's in your way, scientists. Nothing's in your way, healthcare providers. Did they not have an obligation to somebody say, whoa, I'm, I'm not comfortable doing this? I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I'm in total agreement. The government got out of the way. They cleared the runway, and, and Warp Speed was all about, you know, red tape, deregulating, get out of the way. we got to have a vaccine. But do you not agree that somebody in academia, in science, in medicine should have said, I'm not comfortable doing this? And, they, it, and if you don't think that happened, then, then I mean, like inherent, inherent belief. Do you believe that people in the FDA, and and they're not partisan. I mean, we can say that like Fauci's a partisan. You can you could believe that if you want, but the man served how many administrations? Fauci's a, Fauci's you, sympathetic to government. I mean, government's the way he made his living. I don't think Fauci's a conservative or liberal. I mean, I don't care if he is one or the not. other. But but I think Fauci is a bureaucrat, and I think he's going to always side. On, on defending government's role in whatever government decides to do. But I want to go back to what you said about you don't think somebody spoke out. Yeah, I think there were people at Pfizer who were uncomfortable in doing things they were doing. I think there were people at um at the World Health Organization, but they were told to shut up. I believe that with every fiber of my being. that There, 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 there was a financial and, and, and monetary component. And if anybody at Pfizer or anybody in the healthcare community said anything, I mean, I just told the story, and you know I'm right about this. There were doctors who had a lot of questions, but but they were asked to kind of, you know, pl- take one for the team, so to speak. So, so, yes, I do believe there are a lot of people that know much more than I do that wanted to speak out, but were advised that's probably not in your best interest. Well, and, 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 and listen, this vaccine debate didn't start with the COVID vaccine. Okay. I totally agree. There, there are a bunch of anti-vaxxers. And, and if, if, look, if you want to be an anti-vaxxer, go move to a third world country and look at what the people look like. Go look at the mortality rate in foreign countries without vaccines and without medicine. Okay. It, it's, it's, it's a, we're, we're all human, but we're, we're blessed enough to have access to modern medicine. But Jeff, you would have to agree that this vaccine is different. I, I'm going to say it is different. Okay. It has new technology that's been developed. And it's and not it, been anywhere near as effective as the other vaccines. Again, we, we're we dealing with a, a virus strain that is absolutely changing. Now, we can say it came from a China, you know, whatever. That's another uh, issue. But let me ask you this. Do you think there's been any other vaccine that has been taken more in the history of man than that one? Probably not. But, and, but how many other, and, how many people took the German measles vaccine and contracted German measles, the polio vaccine and got polio? Th- this mean, is not a vaccine. Happens. We have to agree. I understand the emergency declaration. I understand Operation Warp Speed. You've read about it. I've read about it. You have an opinion. I have an opinion. This is not a vaccine. It's never been a vaccine. It is a therapeutic agent that had to be fast-tracked and if they don't call it a vaccine, if they recall, I mean, if they if they if they identify it as a therapeutic agent, they lose all the the deregulation and less red tape that warp speed provided. Would you agree to that? I, I, no, I, I mean, like okay. you, you can you, you can say it's not a vaccine. It's a therapeutic agent. Uh, listen, uh, George Washington vaccinated his troops. Right. How did he do it? 
Jeff, you and I, we got to take a break, but I want to say this, and I think Rev will agree with me. Jeff and I have a better debate about these issues than anybody had at the national level. Absolutely. And, and I think I Jeff's mean, a reason. I think he's wrong about everything, yeah. but I think he's a very reasonable man. And I think he finds to me somewhat reasonable. And one political nugget that comes to mind, political related to vaccines and warp speed. Remember the timing of when they announced the vaccine had been discovered? It was the week after the election. Yeah. And that's very political in nature. Uh, but but I've never said this is a partisan issue. Please, under, this is about big government. This is about the cozy relationship that government has with big business, big pharma, big insurance companies, big auto manufacturers. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's a government funded by corporatist interest. Um, I thought Democrats kind of believed in the, the common man. <laughs> Take a break back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to Neil and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Neil. Hey, guys. I just wanted to continue the discussion you were having. And the next time you're having that debate with Jeff, and, and I appreciate him bringing up some points. I appreciate him bringing up Trump's role in it. There is a very, very key fundamental difference, and that is the word that begins with man and ends in date. Mandate. Trump was never going to make it mandatory for any human being in the United States of America to take that vaccine. That's the key difference. You know, Comrade, Comrade Biden got in office and it became mandatory first in the military, then for government, then to travel on an airline, then to play in the NBA if you're a 22-year-old healthy male, and then to play in the NFL. That's the key difference. It was experimental. Trump acknowledged it. He knew it. It was, it was revolutionary. It was new, but it was voluntary. Um, and, and the True. mandate, to me, is really the key difference. Well, explain. And early on, Biden said he would not be supportive of a man yeah but but then somebody leaned on well, biden and... that, well you remember when he said that that was when it was trump's vaccine and that's one thing <laughs> one thing in my mind trump really really screwed up after the election he should have gone out parading that vaccine around and really backed him into a corner he should have done that and he should have declared the uh, narco terrorist organizations international terrorists if he had done those two things he really would have changed the trajectory of how biden handled a lot of this stuff but uh you know that, and you can also discuss the origin of it. I, I think that the, the origin is key, is really key. And were we funding that lab? I mean, we really got to look into that. What and, and take a hard look at what we're doing around the world, and especially when a deal when we're dealing with the the communist Chinese. And we need to take a hard look at how we are as a people and where we're willing to put our money. Well explained. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate that, my man. Well, I want to go back to the Jeff call because that back and forth was intelligent. It's discussion. It's a bit of a difference of opinion, a little agreement. And that, to me, is really good radio. Well, I mean, Jeff bit his lip when he said, you're a believable guy. Um, <laughs> didn't want to say that. But, but, but he said that. And I, I mean, that's a compliment. I mean, look, and that's where I think cult radio leaves its um, potential on the, on the vine. I mean, it, it really doesn't maximize its potential when it comes to that. Talk radio has been marginalized by um, a certain certain percentage of our audience. Well, not our audience, but a certain percentage of um, the public believing. Man, all they do is yell and scream at one another, and these guys have already got their minds made up about whose fault it is. It's all the Democrats' fault. The Republicans are, have, have no blame. You know, every, everything is about government and the Democrats. And, and the majority of my mindset is there. I mean, I do believe Democrats are worse than Republicans. I believe big government's worse than, than limited government. I, I believe if you... um. When you look at the track record of Biden, the track record of Trump, Trump was a much better president than Joe Biden was. But I think having a serious debate about those issues is where talk radio could be so productive in civic discourse. I mean, I really believe that. And um, and for whatever reason, it's decided to be kind of the super server model. And, and I guess Limbaugh did it better than anybody ever has. Some of these other guys do it amazingly well. They're highly compensated to gin up 
the base, so to speak. And I understand that we do that. I don't do that intentionally. I mean, all I do, when Jeff said I'm believable, I think the reason I'm somewhat believable is because I believe what I say. And there's a detection people have about whether I say something in, in, in kind of a, a different sort of way. I mean, I know I speak in a very different sort of way and explain things in a very different sort of way. But the reason we've had success at Wake Up Carolina, and I think Rev said it in the early days of Good Morning PD, we're going to keep it real. I, I You know, I, I'm a country boy, but I ain't dumb. And and I'm able to read that, and understand. Well, you know, that's... um whatever the mission is, but I thank Jeff. And I mean this sincerely. I wish there were eight more Jeffs every day that would call in and take me to task for what I say over the airways. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.